Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I just think it's an enticement. It's not rocket science. It can be done. I truly believe it can. It's wanton destruction. It's also illegal. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Oh my word. Did you see that sunrise? That's the sunrise of the year so far. This gorgeous, orangey, pinky, reddish ball up over the houses and up over the trees and up over the... Man alive! Not to mind a follow-on from the sunset last night. Like, lads, we're doing so... And this is... they, They were Spanish sunsets and Spanish sunrises this morning which is interesting when you see news coming in and we'll talk about this in the next couple of days we get one or two of our weather people on to talk about this uh, there's a talk in the British papers this morning of a Spanish plume bringing a heat wave in early May a Spanish plume is the kind of thing that gave us a fantastic summer in 2018, gave us a fantastic Mediterranean summer in 2013, and if a Spanish plume comes and sits here long enough, sits in this neck of the woods long enough, it can keep all that Atlantic junk away from us. So, is what we've just had this morning and last night a harbinger of what is to come? My goodness, wouldn't it be great? Good morning. Speaking of beautiful things in nature. Today's Earth Day and I want you to tell me, you know the way we're always been told, oh put out the plastic cut out the plastic and cut out the waste and, and grow wild flowers and help the bees and do this with your garden and do that with your car and this and that and the other and we're always being told that we have to change our behaviour we have to do things and you know what we do too we, I think we've all probably changed our behaviour in the last few weeks because we're worried about the state of our planet not so much for us but for our grandchildren say and like we've done things in Cougar Towers that I never thought we'd 
be doing like properly searching through and properly going over the recycling and I've become a right pain in the arse I'll say that not supposed to go in there I never thought I would see myself do that never thought I'd see myself do that but you have to do it but what should the big companies be doing the big international companies like how can they help we are all the ones coming under pressure we're the ones being told, oh, you have to do it. Your home is where it all starts. Your waste, your heating, your lighting, your car, that's where it all starts. Well, I, you know, I call foul on that because the big companies need to be doing more. The big international conglomerates need to do more. What is it they need to do? And how can they help us to do what we have to do? And all of the pressure that we come under to look after our planet and rightly so and we'll talk about it in a couple of different ways this morning the things we're expected to do to look after our planet the the corporate world doesn't seem to come under the same kind of pressure have you ever noticed that? anyway, that's that's for you What, 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 what company do you think should be doing more to save the planet? even look at the clothes you're wearing this morning look at the brands you're wearing look at the thing you ate for breakfast how could those big companies be helping? All right, that's just a, th- a little thing I want you to think about this morning. 083 396 96 96. Speaking of sunshine and sunrises and sunsets and summers and possible Spanish plumes, front page of the Irish Sun has a great headline. I love this headline Vacation Once Again. Adam Higgins, their political correspondent, is writing that people who are fully vaccinated could be heading off on holidays before the end of the year. This is according to Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, who says that there is some good news on the horizon because we've talked about moving to Spanish holiday spots or Portuguese holiday spots. And there is a lot of talk across the EU now of allowing us to do that once we've had our jab. And once we can prove we've had our jab. And I, I know from the Canaries and from the Balearics, they're looking very much at no jab, no entry. You'll have to show, if you want to go to Tenerife or you want to go to Lanzarote or you want to go to Mallorca or you want to go to anywhere, they're gonna, you're going to have to show that you've had your, your jab. It's going to be happening across Europe. Let's bring in Adam Higgins and see what's going on politically. Adam, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Yeah, you mentioned the Spanish plume heat wave there. Maybe we won't have to go abroad to get some sun this year. But for people who maybe still want to get away, there's some hope. The ministers were out yesterday, several ministers flagging the up that it may be possible to, to be getting on planes again before the, the year's out. Are they trying to keep us sweet before they tell us that we can't go to the pub until July? No, oh, that's a very... It's a very pessimistic uh, um, outlook of it there now, PJ. I think I do think there's a bit of politics at play here now because what you had yesterday was uh, Minister Coveney came out and said that there could be good news around international travel. He said June was probably too soon, but you know this European Green Passport is coming in in June. We we don't have to sign up for it straight away. We can we can wait a while to sign up for it. But he did say that, you know, maybe later on in the year we could be still heading away on international trips. And then you have the Fine Gael leader, uh, Leo Varadkar, out short while after that saying, again, June is probably too soon. But he did say maybe later in the summer or later in the year. So he's bringing it back even earlier. 
Now, Fianna Fáil was the Taoiseach came out and was asked about it. He was much more conservative. He said that the government are only focusing on May and June at the moment and international travel will not be on the cards for those months. And then you had the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan, out just earlier on this morning saying that maybe summer was too soon for this. So I think you have a, this something that we've seen a lot through the pandemic is the three coalition parties kind of jostling to announce any scrap of good news first. Mm which led, as you know, to some missed targets and a lot of people getting very angry with the government when things didn't reopen as previously flagged. But it seems despite all the controversy caused by that, Fine Gael are still sticking with this attempt to be the first party to break the good news. And they're much more optimistic in all their answers than the other government parties. And I think that's probably a tactic from the leadership of that party. I wonder, though, Adam, have they learned from what happened last year? Because around this time last year, we were starting to open up and we had a document in front of us with stages and dates and lists of what would open up and what would start. And then... Looking back on it now, we have to say Leo lost the run of himself and he started accelerating it all. And what was supposed to be happening in August happened in June and July. And we all welcomed it at the time. But were we a little bit silly because the public health doctors said, no, we're not ready? And they rushed it. Michal Martin is the most um, nervous man ever leading a country, I think. But is he going to err on the side of caution over the next couple of months? I think, look, that's that's a good point. I think he will err on the side of caution. I think you've seen that already as we've reopened now. It's been very, it's been a much more phased approach. So you'll get, over the course of months, you'll get maybe three things that reopen spaced out with a week to 10 days between each one. And I think that's something you're going to see again when we get, the, the cabinet will meet again next Tuesday and they'll discuss the reopening plans, but they won't re- announce them until Thursday. They're going to have two cabinet meetings next week, which is a bit rare. So they're going to wait until Thursday to meet again, get all the health advice, and then it's Thursday evening that all their listeners will find out then that what's going to reopen uh, for the next month. And I know that's going to start with May 4th. You're going to see stuff like um, mass starting up again in churches, things like that. And you might see click and collect in retail, that sort of thing. And then by the end of May then, sorry, by the end of May, you're going to see more retail opening up. So it'll be a phased approach. And I think that phased approach will continue right the way through the summer. Something else that I know you mentioned, this the roadmap we had last year. I think you're going to get... Not not something as detailed as that, but you are going to get on tour, next Thursday a view to what we can expect throughout the summer. So we'll get, you know, will pubs and restaurants be able to serve outdoors? You'll you, you get a, maybe a broad indicative date around that. So you might get that. That could be on the cards for June. That could be on the cards for July. Mm. And hotels and staycations and all this sort of stuff. We're going to get broad outlines of when we can expect to do those things now next week. You know, there's a feeling, though, I think, it's out there, Adam, in public. And, you know, people are very cynical about trying to keep the opinion polls, trying to improve the opinion polls. There's a, there's a certain feeling out there that I, I get it in my water, as it were. If by, say, the June weekend, we can't at least have friends over to sit in the garden, they'll be hell to pay. And I'm sure they're conscious of that at a political level, are they? Oh, of course they are. And that specific um, thing you just mentioned of having friends over to your garden was flagged a couple of times this week again by Fine Gael ministers. Uh, Simon Harris was out earlier on this week saying that maybe things have gone so well uh, with the cases going down recently and the vaccination campaign really speeding up that maybe they'll be able to do even more outdoors 
in the month of May. And he was asked, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by even more in the, in the month of May? We've already heard that we're going, we might be able to do retail and, and hairdressers and things like that. What do you mean by more outdoors? And he said, well, pe- more people at the moment can only meet up with one household out in the park. He said, maybe we can do more there. So what I assume he means there is larger groups meeting up outside, maybe two, three households. And also maybe you can meet up with your friends in a garden and garden you know, cup of tea in your garden with your friends, that sort of thing. I'd imagine that could be on the cards for May. I, don't, I really don't think you're going to be waiting until June to see that. Okay. Finally, getting back to the vaccine rollout, Adam, we're now waiting on NIAC to see what they'll say about Johnson & Johnson. And like that's 600 and something injections and that's 600 and something people vaccinated at the end of June, by the end of June. What do you think, or is there any feeling on the ground Nyack is going to say about Johnson & Johnson? Well, there is huge pressure from the government on Nyack to rule that this drug can be used for everybody without an age limit because it, you can't really underestimate how important this drug is for the government now to not only hit the targets but exceed them. The government are still confident that even if Johnson & Johnson doesn't come on stream for people under the age of 60s, they'll still be able to make that four out of five adults have their first dose by June. But what it will change is, because as you mentioned, that's 600,000 people that could be fully vaccinated, no two doses done, and here's your green pass, off on your holidays at the end of the year. So... NIAC will meet today. I'm not sure whether a decision will come today. It may take another day uh, and there's real pressure from the government even, uh, which is unusual for mm. the time. Pressure is one thing, Adam, but at the end of the day, the doctors and the scientists will say what, what, what medicine and science says. So is there an expectation of what might come back at this stage? Well, you'd hope that the, the scientists would be able to stand by their science and not be influenced by any politics, but sometimes these things can 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 play a role. Like, I mean, they'll be listening to all the news reports yesterday of the Tarnister saying that he really hopes this will be ruled for uh, safe for everybody and not just over 60. So that, that, that politics does have a part to play for the scientists, whether they like it or not. But I think an indication-wise now, we, we don't really know. I mean, if you look at AstraZeneca, similar um, blood clot fears around AstraZeneca, which led to the decision. The EMA gave a, a, a similar decision to the, that they did to Johnson & Johnson, that this was safe for everybody to use, and yet the Irish, uh, the NIAC was a little bit more conservative and said only over 60s. So yeah. this could go either way. All right, Adam, we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Adam Higgins, a political correspondent of the Irish Sun. I, the other thing about the holidays, I mean, I completely abandoned any prospect of getting on a plane to the sun this year. We're looking at 2022. It just abandoned it. Like, what's the point of even trying? Lost money last year. Did the right thing. Didn't go last year. And this year, what's the point? We'll just let it play itself out and hopefully be back to normal next year. Not a lot of people have anything booked at this point. What's the point? But then again, 1850-715-996. This is just a trick, says one call, to stop vaccine hesitancy. The younger groups are the most reluctant to take the vaccine because younger women are on the pill, which is a clot risk, and they don't see a risk from the disease. They love their holidays and they want to go. Fair point. South Dock, we were going to come to this momentarily anyway, but Fiona's called the opinion line on 96FM because you're very cross, I think, furious, in fact, Fiona, about the latest news from South Dock with regard to Blackpool. She's gone. She was on five there, Terry. You might try and get her back for me. That's going to happen. The South Dock in Blackpool is reopening, but it's reopening by appointment only. 
and people are not happy. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairymaid Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96 FM. You know, I've always got the big tunes to race you through your afternoon in Cork. Bring you all the latest entertainment news. If it's happening at Leaside, I'll tell you about it. But it's not all about me, it's about you too. So make sure you're on the air as well. Good. You're for sunny day here in Yon. How are you? Are you? Are you? <laughs> and it's glorious. But if it was the beer garden open, I would have stopped in there on the afternoon. <laughs> Simon Murdoch, midday to 4 p.m. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance, cmig.ie. On Cork's 96 FM. Okay, so Fiona had to go. Busy, busy person. Thanks for calling anyway, Fiona. She said she's furious about the South Dock decision. Her daughter has a baby with special needs. They often need to urgently consult a GP. Recently went out to South Dock at half four in the morning to Kinsale Road and got out of it at half six, which clearly indicates South Dock, Kinsale Road, Kinsale Road already overrun. I mean, if you go out there at half four in the morning and you don't get out, there till ha- out of it till half six, like, it's more services you need, not sending more people out there. And the South Dock in Blackpool, we read in the Echo this morning, and we saw some of the correspondence, it's opening by appointment only after being closed for 12 months. And it's it's a strange setup. It seems to be there'll be a doctor on call so that when you call South Dock in the evening time, and they'll deem that you need to be seen, then if you can get to Kinsale Road you'll be seen in Kinsale Road if you can't get to Kinsale Road someone will either come and see you in a house call or you'll get an appointment to South Dock and Blackpool it all sounds a bit a bit half-arsed actually Thomas Gould of Sinn Féin has been pursuing this one since day one Thomas good morning a bit half-arsed is the way I'd look at it yes Pete what this is though this is disgraceful behaviour by the South Dock doctors and the South Dock management. And it just shows you the disrespect that they have for the people in the North Side. So, well, like, first of all, we want South Dock open, and that's a, that's a bit of positive news. But what I'm saying to, to you now and to all your listeners this morning, when it opens and if anyone contacts South Dock, and if they say, can you go to the Kingshill Road roundabout, I'm asking people to say, no, we want to be seen in Blackpool or we want to be seen at home and yeah. put the pressure back on South Dock then to come out. Because Meg makes the point on, on Twitter, and she's right, of course, that South Dock is by appointment anyway. You, you can't just rock up to the door. You have to ring them and they ring you back and they tell you when to come and, and, and where to go. And that's, that's always been the case. But this will be a case of you'll only be seen on the north side if you can't get to Kinsale Road. Well, my understanding, PJ, you know, is that's what they're saying. If you can't get to the Kinsale Road or if you're too sick, but as you de- as you described a, a girl earlier, or Fiona, who went down, people are travelling long distance out of hours uh, with sick children and sick family members. It's not good enough if people live. So if people look for the Blackpool service to be reopened, like 
SOTOC get paid 7.29 million a year to provide the service. And we have to demand that. And in actual fact... Hang on, to provide the service in Blackpool, Tom? Well, you see, PJ, they're to provide an out-of-hour service. Yeah. And the one thing I would say about the HSC, the HSC are demanding that they open South Dock Blackpool. The problem here is the government aren't forcing South Dock to open. And that's... We want the full service. Like, but isn't it the H... It, the, the row is between the HSE and South Dock. Like, the government kind of doesn't have a role to turn up and order South Dock to open. The service level well, agreement PJ, is between the HSE and South Dock. It's up to the well, HSE PJ, to force them. If, if South Dock aren't willing to provide a full service for the North Sea, then we have to look at allowing it to go out to other people to put in, uh, to provide that service. Like, we're talking about millions of euros here. Yeah. And PJ, what this is though, this is the South Dock management and doctors uh, treating the North Sea the second class citizens. It, it's disgraceful stuff. Well, I wouldn't be classing the ordinary GPs who put in their shift in South Dock as doing that. Well, PJ, as far as I know, they're all members of South Dock, right? And if, there's an, if the GPs own the South Dock uh, franchise... It's a co-op. Well, then, yeah. Sorry? It's a co-op. It's a co-op. But a lot of those co-op doctors are in the north side. And to be honest, a lot of them are on the south side as well. And you made a point about Kinsale Road there. We know for a fact that Kinsale Road is barely able to cope. Yes. And sometimes they're actually not able to cope because there have been times over the last number of months where they had to put out emergency calls for GPs to come into Kinsale yeah. Road because they couldn't cope. So this is not just bad for people in the north side. Yeah. This is bad for people in the south side because they're going into one... Like, we're, we're in the middle of a public health pandemic yeah. and we're pushing everyone into the one location. It's wrong, it goes against the HSE guidelines and it needs to be stopped. Before I come back to what the HSE might do about this, I think it's important to point out too, isn't it, Thomas, that we talk about South Dock based in Blackpool, but this isn't just about Commons Road, this isn't just about Farinree, Granabraher, Churchfield. This is about a huge catchment area almost heading up as far as Mallow. I've had people from Tower, Blarney, Carrick-Navarre, Renair, Whitechurch, Stoney to Glanmire. You see, when, when people talk about the north side, I talk about everything north of the Lee. And this, as you said, nearly goes right into Mallow. I've dealt with a number of people who are very sick children. And like, this is the thing here. Like, the people who have really sick family members, either children or older members, travelling long distances is not good for them. It's not good for their health. And, like, PJ... We need to get South Dock reopened and then we need to let the South Dock know that we're not going to accept half the service. Yeah. I'm actually speaking... I'm reading from the Echo here where South Dock says, it's according to the Echo, the South Dock says it expects numbers to be low as the majority of patients have transport and are more than happy to travel. Now, I'd love to know anyone, and if anyone wants to call me at 1850-715-996 from any part of the catchment area of South Dock in the north side, and tell me that they're more than happy to drive when they're not feeling well, or Mammy isn't feeling well, or the child is sick, they're more than happy to drive across the city, rather than go to Blackpool. I, I haven't yet heard from anybody who's in that position. Please, uh, I, I don't believe that for one minute. There might be a few people who mightn't be too sick, who might be uh, able to go out there, and that's fine. But the vast majority of people, the vast, vast majority of people are not in that position. So you're suggesting that when people are contacted back, when they make the call, South Dock ring you back, can you go to Tremor Road, or sorry, Kinsale Road? You're asking people to say, no, I can't. 
And if they if they refuse to let them go to Blackpool, I'm asking people to contact me, and I will take that up with the Minister for Health then, wanting to know why they're not providing the service. Because if people are sick, they should be given the service sure. they need. Now the contract, and again, you can bring it to the Minister for Health. That's fair enough. But the contract, the service level agreement, as they call it, is between HSE and South Dock. So what's HSE's role here, rather than just standing idly by? Well, actually, what's happening now with the contract, PJ, is I wrote to the PSC, the Public Accounts Committee, and they are actually bringing the HSC now in looking for an explanation to why SOTAC, when they're getting paid 7.29 million, are not providing the service that the people of Ireland, and in particular the people of Cork, are paying for. Because this is this is government money that they signed an agreement to do. Yeah. And, like, PJ, if you look, the day that the PSC wrote to Southdock to tell them the, uh, the HSE to come in and explain. The following day, Southdock said they were going to reopen. So that tells you the pressure we're applying by them to get... And if I have to get them in front of the Public Accounts Committee, because at the end of the day, they're getting paid public money and they have to answer the questions. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. We're following this one with interest. Thomas Gould, thank you very much. Uh, Deputy Gould, Sinn Féin TD for Cork, North Central. So the latest now is, and Tom's been on about this for months and months and months, and I know some people say, why is he on again? Because this is his baby. And to be fair to him, many other politicians will try and take that ball and run. But this is his baby. He's been at this since the very start. And what they've said they'll do now is they'll reopen by appointment only. So what'll happen is you'll call South Dock of an evening on their number and say you want them to you want to talk to someone about your mum or yourself or your brother or your sister or the child. They'll call you back as they do. They'll assess it over the phone as they do. And then they'll ask you, can you get to Kinsale Road? They won't offer you an appointment in Blackpool there and then. They'll ask you first, can you get to Kinsale Road? If you can't get to Kinsale Road, or you're too sick to leave the house, well, someone will come and see you at the house if you're too sick to leave the house. But if you can't get to Kinsale Road, they'll tell you come to Blackpool. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, if you can't go to Kinsale Road, you can go to Blackpool. And it's not just a Northside issue. This is stretching out as far as Dunhamore and stretching out to Blarney, and to Tower, and to Glenmire, and up around the Bottle Hill, Carrig Navarre areas. All those areas are in the catchment of South Dock Blackpool. 1850-715-996. Yes, Adam is on four. Hi, Adam. Hi, PJ. How are you? You're in Lizarda. Lizarda, that's why right. I was on to there a couple of months ago with the, the lockdown stuff. My partner has MS. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no. We have um, a South Dock in McCroom. Yes. That would be the closest one for us now. They close about 10, half past 10. Right. And if anything was to happen between there, they're great. I will admit, no, they're absolutely fantastic in the one in McCroom. But closing times in the half past 10. And if we were to ring, like, I have two young kids as well and stuff like that. Mm. And to try and get them in, trying to get them into the, the one in Kinsale Road roundabout at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock if something was wrong in the morning. It, it's a joke. It's a shambles. You're bringing kids in at that time in the morning yeah. sitting around for three, four, four hours. And is there not even a doctor on call overnight? Uh, we, we have uh, oh, for the one in McCroom? Yeah. Not that I know of, no. I think they're all put into 
the one in Kinsale Road. Right. Because I thought all of the South Docks were 24 hours. No, no, there's there's a GPR, right? Um, Dr. Hurley, his name is, I think he's a part of the South Dock as well there. Right. He he would be one of the GPs of McCroom. But, like, you, I'm not being funny or smart, you can't be calling him every every 24-7, like, no, you know? No, no, no. I mean, your your partner, like you said before, and you explained, has MS, and, and, and you were, do you drive for a living, is that it? I, I'm a truck driver. That's right, I think, I know I remember you, yeah. Yeah, and you were worried, like, your partner's health, I hope, is generally good, but you never know with MS when you're going to need a doctor. Exactly, exactly. No, she has, she's after getting her first, um, first dose of, um, vaccine, yeah. Vaccine. Good man. And she feels well after it. Good. I'm just, I'm waiting now for my time to come. Yeah, I know. So the minute that comes, I'll be getting it straight Isn't away. that a strange one, Adam, too? Like, that if you have somebody in the house who's who needs to be vaccinated because of their health, that they wouldn't just vaccinate the whole house while they're at it. Exactly. I think I think that's a joke. That's, like... I'm not being funny as my own money my own mother has um she suffers stroke and she has um arthritis and stuff like that. No my as far as I know, my mother and father would have got the vaccine. Yeah. But then when you come along the lines to my partner and she got her dose of the vaccine and her own mother didn't even get it yet. Come back to South Dock. Like, would would the opening of Blackpool, the proper reopening of Blackpool, would that make any difference to you? That would probably be further right. away. Right. But I'd say it would help. It would help along the line of people going to Blackpool if Kinsale Road roundabout one was overrun. Yes. If it was too many people. It would help. Now, and I'll be, I know the city and everything like that, and... What they're doing above in Blackpool is a joke. Yeah. It's an absolute joke. Like, giving people false promises and hopes and saying, oh, yeah, we're going to open, and then we're not going to open. No, we are. And give me tennis, basically. Okay. All right. Adam, I wish you, I wish everybody, well, your partner, especially, and everyone around you, uh, out in the country, uh, That's their nearest one is McCroom. That closes at half ten. I didn't realise that the regional ones didn't stay open around the clock. That's me. Being a city boy, I take these things for granted sometimes. That's my failing. So, anything after half ten, if Adam or his partner or the children need a doctor, they'll be sent into the Kinsale Road. Uh, he'd prefer to go to McCroom, obviously. It might make it a little easier to be able to go to Blackpool or someone go to Blackpool because they're waiting South Dock and... Kinsale Road wouldn't be so long. But maybe that explains why Kinsale Road is so busy. If the regional ones are closing at half ten or ten o'clock, then everyone, everyone is coming in to South Dock in the city and you only have one of the two open properly. Sure, it's no wonder that when Fiona, who called us a while ago and unfortunately couldn't stay on the line, she was there from half four to half six in the morning. So clearly, South Dock in Kinsale Road is at capacity. Would that not be a simple assumption to make? 1850 715996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread. 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream.
Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96 FM. Who could have imagined, despite theatres and cinemas being closed, the Arts House would be as busy as ever? Maybe we can't send you for nights out, but each week we bring you the latest news from our vibrant and creative communities all around Cork. Whether it's tips for the best live gigs online, new initiatives from Cork's writers and musicians, or great ideas for sitting at home and exploring galleries in the virtual world, join Elmarie Maw and Connor Tallon as we work to support and keep the arts alive in Cork. The Arts House. Mornings 8 to 10 with Griffin's Potatoes. Griffin's new chipping potatoes are specially grown to make the perfect homemade chip. Fluffy inside and crunchy outside. Now in store. Courts 96 FM. I'll come back to South Dock. Lot of people calling us uh, not happy about what they see as a part time service uh, in Blackpool covering the, the north, central, north side, north. That, general area. They're not happy with what they think is a part-time service. So I'll come back to it, I promise you, in the course of the morning. Also some suggestions about how Earth Day could be marked by some big companies doing a slightly better job. You will have heard, though, in the last few weeks about the right to disconnect. This is there, an official code of practice in place since the 1st of April. And what it effectively means... It's under a thing called the Workplace Relations Act of 2015. It's an extension of it. You don't have to be available for work outside of normal hours. And your boss can't put pressure on you for extra work outside of normal hours. It's kind of been there for a while, but we've refined it a little bit. Cleena Kenny is an employment law solicitor with CKT. Cleena, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me on. It's delight- good to have you. It is. It kind of has always been there, but this has refined it. You, you now have a right to say to your boss, well, sorry, that's my downtime. I'll be back to you. You can. And there always have been a number of statutes that look that surround the employee employment law relationship. Um, but basically, this is a guidance and a code of practice that has been brought in by the minister. And it sets out in very, very detailed way what should be happening. And a lot of this has to do with the employer and the employee relationship and deciding what's appropriate for that employee and that business. So it, it's not going to be the same for everyone, but it depends on your role within an organisation and the, the business that you're working for. Like, if you take my job, that would be impossible for me to do, coming in here at 7 o'clock and finishing my day at home around 4 o'clock. You know, it would be impossible for me to say, well, I'm not available then until the following morning. You just couldn't do that. Well, I, and I think that's what's very important to realise. I mean, certain jobs, by their very nature, by their status, by the type of work it is, will be work that you will be required to maybe take calls at 11 o'clock at night or to go out in a car at two in the morning, depending on what your role is. But then once it is all, your rest breaks are taken care of, you're under the organisation of working time and you're getting salary commensurate with that and you're getting time off commensurate with the obligations, that's fine. So this code of practice really sets out a general guidance, but it very much has to then be tailored to your individual business and your job. Effectively, if your job ends at five and something could easily wait until morning, then your boss doesn't have the right to make you do that 
at half seven at home. Am I right there? That would that would be pretty much yes. That would you would have a right to say, look, that is not extremely urgent. Can I do that in the morning? And I mean, a lot of these things, this right to disconnect is only going to be a problem usually when there's other problems in the relationship. Um, you know, it's not going to be something that crops up solo on its own. But yes, if it is a matter that can wait, if it is a matter that really doesn't need to be dealt with and you've been working all day and, you know, you've been there and you've you've taken care of all your tasks for that day, I think then it would be very reasonable for an employee to say, I can't do that this evening. I will do it in the morning. And this this code is saying that you cannot be penalised for that. Communication, of course, very important at all levels. Yes. When, when, when putting a plan in place as to how this will work. So effectively, would this be something written into a contract of employment or would it be written into a, a, a workplace, if you like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Handbook, a kind yes. of handbook. Yes, yes, yes. And that, that's where I, mean, I think our team here would recommend that it would be put into the handbook. So usually what you would have is you have your terms of employment or contract, which tells you the hours you work and your role and your salary. And then for most people, there should there's usually policies and procedures that apply to that business. So it would have to do with the annual leave policy, the maternity leave policy, you know, the grievance policy. If there's a problem, how do you deal with that? And the right to disconnect this based on this guidance that, and code of practice should, we would believe should be in there. But, and the, in fairness, the code of practice is quite detailed. It gives a good layout, a template layout at the end and closes. But it is always going to have to be tailored to the individual business and the individual and the employees that work there in. So there's always this conversation that goes on between an employee and an employer as to what works best. There should also be a conversation, should there not, as to what constitutes urgent. Yes. And I mean, that is something that should be worked out within with your manager and with the team that you work in, because there will be urgent things. That's it's the nature of the world we live in. And of course, everybody thinks their their thing is urgent. But at some stage, a business um, does have to decide how they're going to prioritize the workload and how that's going to be dealt with. And that, again, is part of this conversation to ensure to ensure that people are getting their proper breaks, they are getting their proper time off, which is so important for the health and well-being of everybody. And that, in turn, is very good for business. Now, delayed send of email has been there practically since email. It was invented. Fergal was telling me here the other day that Outlook, for example, has had that facility for years that you could send the email but tell it not to be delivered until 9 o'clock in the morning. Should systems like that be used wherever appropriate? Where appropriate. And I think that, and there's different ways that different people have of organising that. So the delayed send is definitely a technique that is used by a lot of people, but also your notifications. We all have, for the most part, we have our, our work emails a lot of the time on our mobile devices, but you can turn off notifications. And I think sometimes people forget that. Yes. So sometimes you hear of people complaining, oh, I got a ping at 11 o'clock at night, or, you know, you can decide. Once you've discussed it with your employer and once you know the the layout of what you need to achieve in any given day um, and you're happy that nothing is urgent, you can always turn off the notifications on your on your phone at yeah. 7 o'clock at night or 6 p.m. or whatever time it is and maybe have an arrangement with your team or your manager that if something is urgent, they'll telephone 
you yeah. know, I mean, it all depends. It can be all tailored, but it has to be tailored to the individual yeah. circumstances. It's, it's down to it's down to communication. Where we heard this over the last few months was in in the in the realms of working from home. So the person has the office set up on the dining room table and they're working there and they clock off at five o'clock and the attitude of sometimes some boss will be, Asher, listen, you'll stay there, won't you? You're only at home anyway. You'll stay there till six, won't you? You'll do this for me. I need this done. And you say, well, I shall do it in the morning because I can't do it now. And that causes tension. It can be abused when you're working from home. It can. And this is why this code of practice is so timely, because it has come after we've now had this great revolution in working from home and this huge leap forward in relation to how we do work. I mean, it was forced upon us by the pandemic, but we have found very effective, very efficient ways. Now, some not so efficient and not so effective, but for the most part, people after a year of this have managed to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And I certainly know that's very common in in my job at the moment. We figured out what works and what doesn't work. So yes, if you're at home, there is this element you're at home anyway. There was a bit of, because we're in level five, well, sure, why just can't you do it at the weekend? Sure, you're not going to be going anywhere. Um, yeah. And I mean, that isn't, you know, you are still entitled to downtime. You're entitled to your breaks. You're entitled to your family time. And it is where it oversteps the mark and somebody feels taken advantage of that that's where the problem arises. And if it's left to fester, it becomes a much bigger problem. So yes, I mean particularly with the working from home, there should be very clear guidance from the employer as to what's expected and not. Now sometimes it may suit somebody to turn back on the laptop at 7pm or 8pm if the kids are in bed or or whatever you had to do that evening is done because you may have taken a longer break in the middle of the day to take care of some domestic or personal issues. Flexible hours. There's give and take and I think that is what is so important that the conversation is had and I think this code of practice gives a great template and jump start to the conversation that needs to be had. Okay. If you need to make a complaint, how do you start? So if you need to make a complaint, the first thing anybody should do is look at their own handbook and policies for the company they work for. So there should, we would always recommend, and there should be a guidance procedure. If there isn't, you need to go probably and ask the HR or the manager if there is a guidance procedure and read it and make sure that you're following the procedure that's laid down by your particular employer. Usually it will start with a very informal conversation with your manager. If you're not getting anywhere with that, it then is usually escalated to a much more senior person. And if you're not getting anywhere in informal talks, then usually you would make a written complaint. If that is not being dealt with appropriately or in line with the policy, you can then make a complaint to the WRC, the Workplace Relations Commission. And the Workplace Relations Commission have adjudicators, essentially they're a quasi-legal function, and they will hear your complaint and they can make awards on foot of it. Um, So that's how you do it. But normally, as I said, these things won't happen in a vacuum. The right to disconnect probably won't happen in a vacuum. It'll be part of a much larger complaint where there's a number of things that have probably gone wrong in the relationship. Lastly and briefly, I think the next step, and this is being looked at, the next step, isn't it, a right to ask and be granted the green light to continue working from home after the pandemic. That's being discussed. It is, and I suppose as I said, because we've made such a quantum leap in the last year, I think businesses and employees have found at this point the advantages and the disadvantages 
of working from home. And I think, again, it's going to have to be tailored to the business. There are some jobs that just can't be done from home. Yes. They just can't. Yes. Um, and there are some tasks that will never be possible to be done at home. But it's part of a wider discussion as to how, we're, how our lives are going to look going into the future. And I think employers have found out, actually, people working from home is working in a lot of instances. Yeah. And that in itself leads to greater efficiencies along the line and a lot of the time to greater goodwill um, and morale, which is always always a good thing. Yeah. It's, it really is down to everybody communicating properly, working together and understanding that when he or she wants a day out of it, they get the day out of it unless it's an absolute emergency. Thanks for that very much, Cleana Kelly from CKT. On the right to disconnect, it has kind of always been there. But now it's a code of practice under the law. Yeah, it's since 1997 on Outlook, you could delay the delivery of an email. Android can delay the delivery of text messages, which is interesting. And we think Apple can as well. I've never looked into it. I'm an iPhone man. I've never looked into it myself. But you can, for example, time your notifications to turn off at six o'clock. You can set your phone that you get none of these banner notifications or no pings after six o'clock if you want to do it. But to my, my crowd here, Grand, there's never any pressure. 1857 I mentioned Earth Day. And, you know, it's a day when we take note of, of the, I suppose, the planet emergency, the climate emergency that we have and how we can help with it. I'm asking you the question this morning, you know, the things that you're being asked to do every day with your car and your waste and your food and your plastic and your power and all that. But what should the big companies be doing? The big conglomerates be doing? How can they help? And how can we help with regard to nature is a massive question. I watched a documentary on Netflix earlier this year on pandemics and where they think pandemics come from and where the next pandemic might come from. And there's a guy in that called Dennis Carroll who's an expert on the crossover between animal and human with regard to pandemics. And that's a big feature with regard to uh, Earth Day. Uh, Irish Doctors for the Environment, Donald O'Cronin. Good morning, Donald. Good morning, PJ. That is a very important crossover. I don't know if you've seen that documentary, but that guy, Dennis Carroll, explains really well how we've got to respect the border between us and the animals or more stuff will come in. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, PJ. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me on. Um, really, pandemics and this, I suppose, this, this pandemic in particular, the COVID-19 pandemic, are a result of humankind's inappropriate use of and relationship with nature. Most of the diseases that are emerging at the moment are coming from animals. We have five new diseases emerging every year in humans and any one of these can be the next big one, the next big big pandemic and the vast majority of diseases are, are coming from animals um, you know, all the diseases you think of HIV, Ebola, Zika influenza, these all come from animals and the, the, the animals have, have, have no interest in hanging around with humans you know, it's, it's the humans that are going after the animals the, the bat doesn't want to spend any time with us but we're going out, catching the bat, killing it, mm. evicting it from its normal environment. So, so we're coming into contact with, with these creatures. And, and climate change is causing us to do that because the cities are in 
in danger of flooding. We're looking for cooler places to live. We're moving nearer to the forests. Some of the forests are burning. So we, the climate change is damaging the environment. It's causing us to move, and we're moving into their territory, and they're going to cross over. Absolutely. Um, they, they, it's actually been shown in, in scientific studies that if, if you have a rainforest, it's a, it's a perfectly balanced environment. You have a, you have a pyramid, predators, and prey. But if you, if you chop down that forest and plant a load of palm trees to get palm oil, you, 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 you eliminate the normal predators that would, that would catch things. And what you get is you get certain creatures like, say, rats or mosquitoes thriving. And there's nothing to kill these creatures. So guess what? These, these creatures start spreading disease to the humans who are, who are living nearby. And all you need then is, is a mutation. And suddenly one of these these diseases is is the next pandemic. So um, deforestation is is a huge problem and climate change as well. Um, it's believed that climate change in particular is is, is the cause for um, an emerging um, brain disease in Scandinavia, which is which is spread by ticks. So when when the when when we change the temperature in different parts of the world, we allow creatures to thrive in areas that they wouldn't previously have, yeah. have gone near. You mentioned ticks. Like we know, for example, and we've spoken at length on this program about Lyme's disease, and we know that Lyme's disease is connected to the ticks, and it would frighten you how much Lyme's disease is actually out there. Are you suggesting, Donald, that climate change could be adding to the spread of Lyme disease? Um, it, 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 it could. Certainly, it's believed that this, that this particular type of um, brain disease is is very much down, down to, to climate change in Scandinavia. As as for Lyme disease in particular, I I, I couldn't say in yeah, particular. But it's a tick-borne uh, disease, disease as Certainly, yeah. this this tick-borne virus um, they think has has landed in Scandinavia and and is getting a foothold because of climate change. Well, that is that is very scary, very scary. But we, do, we so so the message of Earth Day in your view, Doctor, is what? So the message of Earth Day really it's it's such a huge problem, but but I think you you gotta you gotta do what you can do. Um, the, the the question isn't can we solve the environmental crisis really, but will we? So we have to decide we're going to do that. So 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 I would say for for people like us who live in in Ireland in a relatively you know prosperous country, uh, we need to consume responsibly. Mm. And what responsible consumption really means is less meat and to to consider when we buy anything is it being sustainably produced um ingredients like palm oil palm palm oil is produced from palm trees which are grown uh, typically in chopped down rainforest areas so um look is it does 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 your does your dairy spread in your fridge have palm oil in it a lot of them do some of them don't and you can you can look at the ingredients. So it, I would I would just look at things like that. What am I buying? Are they chopping down the rainforest to produce this for me? Because um, each each one of us they estimate that um, four trees are chopped down to feed each average Westerner every year. So wow. so if you can if you can look at what you buy what you buy because every every euro you spend is a, is a vote for how you want the world to work. So if you consume responsibly, look at what you're buying, um, less meat, 
sustainably produced produce, if possible organic, I, I, I think that's a that's a good start. Okay. And hopefully hopefully the government will take the responsibility they need to take because it, it needs to be society wide top down. Okay. We'll Thanks. leave it there for today Donald because I'm not a bit short of time. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Donald O'Cronin, Irish Doctors for the Environment. Just marking Earth Day. When you buy something, check it. See where it came from. See are you helping even in that small way. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back to South Dock. We've got quite a lot of comment on that. I also have some wonderful ideas from people who want to comment on Earth Day. Do you know we're saying, right, Earth Day, they're, they're looking to us to save the planet as individuals by looking after what we eat and looking after what we wear and wondering how we throw stuff out or not throw stuff out or sustain ourselves and all that. But the question I'm asking you this morning is for Earth Day, what do you think that the big international conglomerates can do? Like, take look at, look at the clothes you're wearing today, right? I'm wearing a pair of Nike runners. Now, like, look at Nike as a global brand. What can they do to help save the planet? That kind of an idea. Or people saying packaging. And actually, do you know what? The amount of flippant packaging on your ordinary, everyday food is just beyond ridiculous. We'll come back to all of that. Uh, Cars Hill, major traffic delay on Cars Hill. Now, Car- anyone who knows Cars Hill knows that all it takes there is the slightest thing. And you have mayhem. There's mayhem there. We don't know what it's about, but traffic is at a standstill on Cars Hill. 1850 If you missed anything in our first hour this morning, of course, the podcast will be available to you in the early afternoon. Cork TD Holly Cairns has really taken up the cudgel on behalf of people with eating disorders. There was an article in the Echo uh, in the last couple of days uh, about uh, earlier this month. It was about a woman who fears she will die if she doesn't get inpatient treatment for anorexia and bulimia. And uh, Deputy Cairns was saying in the Doyle, I think yesterday, the day before, that there were only three beds, three beds for people with eating disorders. Holly, Holly, is that in the whole country? Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, that's in the, in the whole country. There's three HSE beds. So if you have private health care, you're more likely to be able to access the care that you need. But in February, um, I raised the shocking situation whereby no funding was allocated under the National Eating Disorder Treatment Plan for 2020. And worse, that none of the 1.6 million allocated in 2019 was spent, not a cent. So since then, responses to my parliamentary questions revealed that the decision to temporarily pause the nationally planned development of eating disorder services was made for operational reasons rather than clinical ones. Mm. So needless to say, bureaucratic decisions like that should not be allowed to affect the treatment of vulnerable people. But in February, I also highlighted that eating disorders, which affect all demographics but disproportionately present among young women, are among the psychiatric conditions most associated with mortality. And the Minister for State, Deputy Mary Butler, assured me then that she was aware of the issues and was working with the HSE clinical programme leaders to spend the money this year. 
However, like you mentioned, in the meantime, there have been several cases of young women having difficulties accessing appropriate mm. medical care for their severe eating disorders, which indicates there's still a significant gap between the government's intentions and the on-the-ground healthcare services for people who need them. And, you know, I really commend that that Cork woman um, who suffered with bulimia and anorexia for over a decade and in speaking out to the echo, because like you said, she fears she'll die if she doesn't get inpatient treatment for her condition. Mm. Um, and she's spoken out about how it affects her, um, you know, in the hope that somebody can help secure an inpatient bed for her. Yeah. Um, she doesn't have health insurance. She can't afford private treatment. Um, costs would be close to 60000 She's been on a waiting list since last November for outpatient counselling, but says that like an hour or two a week is not enough, that she needs inpatient care. And I think it's generally recognised that early intervention, it's great to have community support and outpatient counselling. But, you know, when, it's, when you're 10 years into this, mm. um, she says that she desperately needs inpatient care. And like you said, there are only three dedicated hospital beds for eating disorders. Um, so people simply cannot get the care that they need. And I think, it's, you know, sometimes when we hear about eating disorders, we don't quite understand the reality of them, but she described what it's like in the echo. And I think that that really hit me and I think a lot of people. And she said that the most accurate way to describe the compulsion to binge eat is that it's as strong as the need to breathe. Like you have to breathe or you'll die. And in her case, it feels like she'll die if she can't get her hands on more food, um, if she can't vomit everything up. You know, we can't underestimate the severity of this. And like I said, so associated with mortality. In mid-March, she tried to take her own life. um, And that's the latest in a number of suicide attempts. Um, And also important to note, my friend lives in the UK, one of my best friends. She's a mental health social worker. She works with a mental health team for the NHS. And she said that more and more now, they're they're seeing people flying over from Ireland to the UK with eating disorders um, to try and get admission into inpatient units. And they need to have a family member or a nurse or somebody with them because they're so unwell for the the journey. They can barely walk. Exactly. And people do not tolerate waiting lists for driver's license, for, for passports, for vaccinations. But for mental health treatment, waiting lists are normal and accepted. And that has to change. We have a long history of exporting our health care to the UK. And it's simply not good enough. People are left with no choice yeah. but to travel to seek the care that they need. Let me, let me just play for listeners, um, Deputy, your very passionate words from, from the doll yesterday. Just briefly, this will take 30 seconds. Here we go. Medical care for severe eating disorders. These cases indicate that there is still a significant gap between government's intention and on-the-ground healthcare services for people who desperately need them. The HSE currently provides three inpatient beds for eating disorders. Three. People who desperately need care simply cannot get it. If you haven't read the piece covered by the Evening Echo on one woman's experience, I hope you will today. Um, and Minister, I'm begging you to please, please, please intervene and do something about this. Strong, strong words, Holly. Do you think they'll be listened to? I really hope so. I mean, they simply have to be. Like, when we have a situation like this, we know that, you know, mental health has never been taken seriously in Ireland. Like, for example, that friend of mine who lives and works in the UK, at some point she talks about how she'd love to move home. However, there is no employment for mental health social workers in this country. Because yeah. we do not take it seriously. And, and like I said, you know, we, we, we have zero tolerance for waiting lists in relation to other things. And then we have three inpatient beds for the entire country in relation to eating disorders, which we know are a big problem and on the rise. And it does affect all demographics, but for the most part, it affects young women. I I have to say, Holly, that is a shocking figure. I know three 
in a country of, in the Republic, four point odd million people, three public beds for the most severe of eating disorders. Like, that's that's not acceptable. And then you mentioned uh, the, 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 non, the non-spending of 1.6 million in 2019. If there's one thing worse, I would say, than not allocating money, it's allocating it and then not spending it. Exactly, and people who are, who are experiencing these conditions aren't necessarily aware. Like, um, one person I spoke to who had, you know, uh, sought help was told there was no inpatient beds and didn't realise that there was, in fact, three and that their consultant could try and refer them for that treatment. But it's they're almost permanently full, are they? I would presume absolutely and that there's a long waiting list, but it's a real indictment in our society that, you know, we have a history of exporting our healthcare problems to the UK and typically in relation to women seeking abortion care. And we continue to do the same thing in another disorder which, which predominantly affects women. We continue to, to send women abroad to seek the care that they desperately need when you're in that kind of a situation when you're so unwell and perhaps close to to death you know at a certain point to have to travel Mm. is just unbelievable and when you consider the challenges during a pandemic to do that it makes it even worse and like that there was 1.6 million and none of it was spent so it seems like there's just a lack of organization a lack of political will but it can't go on any longer because people are suffering to the point where imagine when you're in that situation that you're so desperate have the strength and courage to go and speak to the media because that's the only avenue you feel you have left. That is like something as a nation we should be ashamed of and something that really, really needs to be addressed. And I do think and hope that the Minister will intervene now. Um, I've been in contact with the HSE South South West Regional Group to try and um, encourage them to intervene to make sure that this woman, of course, but also other women and other men who need this care can get it, that something is finally done about this. Because the fact that you can get the care if you have health care is another thing we should be ashamed of because how likely you are to survive should not depend on how deep your pockets are. Well, well, here's the other thing there. Like, the beds exist in the private sector. And look, that is as it is, right? The beds exist in the private sector, but we also have a wonderful thing called the Treatment Purchase Fund. We could, we could use those beds, put people into Absol- them. Absolutely. And on the whole, I think, you know, the way our, our healthcare system is set up, that we have a two-tiered system, is something that most Irish people on a very basic level disagree with, you know, fundamentally yeah. disagree but with. But until such time as we change it, we have to deal with it and we have to work with it. And that would be one way we could do it. We could work with it would be to use the Treatment Purchase Fund. Well, absolutely, but also as a nation, you can see that actually the people have the power and the more pressure they put on governments to do things. If we could finally implement this launch of care policy, which is there, that now has cross-party support, um, a policy that actually the co-leader of Social Democrats, Roisin Jorhal, was the architect of, yeah. if we could finally implement a policy, we have a policy, you know, for, for a, an equal and fair healthcare system that has yet to be introduced, you know, that's outrageous in itself. When you consider that this new government formed at the beginning of a pandemic, where, you know, we never could need this, a, a kind of more functional health system more. When borrowing was so cheap, it was almost unlimited. That they didn't go about implementing Slauncher Care then really doesn't give people, I think, much hope and faith. So I'd encourage everybody to really put pressure on their public representatives and on our government to finally introduce a healthcare system that is fair. Yeah. You know, when we have to look over at the NHS and imagine what that could be like here, that shouldn't be something we're imagining anymore. It should be a reality. Yeah. Caller says here, if I get very ill with a heart attack or something like that, I call an ambulance and I get help straight away. With a mental health crisis or an eating disorder crisis, you're told, call your GP. That's it. 
three o'clock in the morning, you could be in a crisis. Where are you going to get your GP? And then we have an over-reliance on our GPs, on our family resource centres, on community and voluntary services to try and help um, individuals and families deal with these crises when, you know, in reality, uh, it, it falls very unfairly on them because the funding that they get does not reflect the amount of work they're doing in relation to this and they can't be expected to, to know how to deal with them. They fall on, on, on organisations like the Gardaí as well. And Gardaí are not trained um, to deal with these kind of scenarios. You know, you need trauma-informed training. And it's really not fair to expect Gardaí to be able to deal with a lot of these situations. We don't have mental health teams like you'd see, you know, in, in other countries who have a functioning healthcare system. Yeah. Okay. Leave it there for today. Deputy Holly Cairns of the Social Democrats Cork South West. If you're affected by anything we're discussing, then there is a helpline available body-wise, which is the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland. And their helpline is a Dublin number, 012107906. That's 01. 01- Two one zero seven nine zero six. Staying with matters health and coming back to South Dock and the proposal that the Blackpool South Dock Centre will open on a kind of an appointment only basis, and that the only way you'll get an appointment there is if you tell them you can't travel to Kinsale Road or you're just too sick to go to Kinsale Road. Then someone will see you in the Blackpool Centre and people not particularly happy about that. Shame on Micheál Martin and Fianna Fáil for neglecting the Northside people and their health issues. People of the Northside should remember this at the next election and reject them all when they go looking for their votes. The stupidity of this, says Pat in Black Rock, to be like ringing the ambulance to make an appointment. Uh, South Dock, are they breaking their contract, asks another Paul, uh, by refusing to operate the way they're supposed to. That's That's the thing on the table. Are they in breach of their service level agreement? That's the question that's being asked. Willie says, to be honest, any time I had to use South Dock, you rang in the nurse, rang you back, then you went down. I'm not sure this is a big issue. On a side issue, there was someone on RTE saying that travelling outside to tomorrow was not a big issue. That should have been challenged. There's a huge difference if you don't have a car and you're depending on a lift from a neighbour or the cost of a taxi. Yeah, Willie, in fairness, it was Mags who pointed that out on Twitter, and I had forgotten, which is mea culpa. South Dock is an appointment service anyway. You call the number, they come they come back to you, you tell them as they said, what ails you, and then they make a decision on whether you need to be seen or not. And if you need to be seen, you'll be given a time and a place to go. That's always been the way with South Dock. It is appointment only. You can't just rock up to the door. Ever. I don't think you ever were able to do that. It's always by appointment. But the idea here is that you'll only you'll be offered an appointment in Kinsale Road and only if you can't go there will you be offered an appointment instead in Blackpool. Uh, and that is what people are saying is not good enough. Time is often of the essence if a person is ill, particularly a child. 1850-715-996. Some of your ideas on Earth Day... Uh, holding on to them for a little bit because it's interesting. Um, we're saying to you this morning, have a think. Like, we're all being told, well, you know, be careful of the amount of plastic you're using. Uh, don't drive as much when you could walk. Try to buy an electric car. Be careful of where your clothes come from. Be careful of where your food comes from. Dump your food more responsibly. Keep down your waste. All these things. And we're doing all these things. And it can be quite expensive to do what they want us to do.
to be more environmentally aware. Let's call that a spade a spade. It can be expensive to do what they want us to do. Like retrofitting your home, doing better insulation, buying a different car. They can be expensive things to do. But what are the corporates doing? What are the big guys doing? What are the big conglomerates doing and what should they be doing? Kate says, for example, packaging. It drives me crazy, especially the plastic bubble wrap. It's almost impossible to open it. I can only imagine it'll stay in the landfill for a thousand years. Yeah, yeah. I remember buying something recently, small, something small, came in a box. The box was the size of a USA assorted biscuit tin. This was an electronic component I was buying. And it came in a biscuit tin sized box. Thing was the size of a matchbox. And it was packed in layers and layers and layers and layers of bubble wrap. Like, was that really necessary? 1850 715996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. I'll bring you some of those Thursday throwbacks for you today on the air. I've got the old school throwback quiz. Bring you everything you need to race you through your afternoon in Cork. See you from 12 on Cork's 96FM. Just looking at my favourite app, The Dark Sky. And today, it'll be a belter by mid-afternoon. Tomorrow, not so bad. Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Monday will be the warmest day of the year so far, they say. But good blast of weather right into next week. And then, of course, the predictions coming from the UK are that May will start as a Scorchio. And we'll get a tail end of it if it does start as a Scorchio. Our May weekend could be brilliant. Now, Damien was on while I was off. Damien was on with Fiona about how, even though, Damien, you love the sunshine, you were dreading it because you live by the lock and people were effectively piddling in the alleyway by your home. Something has happened to change that. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good, good. What did you see the last time that we had a bit of sun? Yeah, the slope up the lane into our gardens, urinating. Urinating doorways on the lane. Mm. There's a man living on the edge of the lane in his own. He had to move over the weekend. He got so bad. Remind me again. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
where this lane is now in terms of the lock. Lock views come from Glashing Road down onto the lock. I see, I see. Down there, you walk down past the Hawthorne, down maybe 200 yards and you come down there, uh, is no, that? No, no, no. From Den Roach's Cross above. Ah, okay, the other one. Right, yeah, okay. Right. The, you're in the, the whole way up the lane and there's kids playing around the place. Right. It's disrespectful, like. Yeah, yeah. And there's pensioners up there and everything, the whole lot. It's like anything normal, no one's people urinating in the doorway. Yeah. On the front yard, you look out the window. Yeah. And of course, the bit of sun was dragging, drawing them out and yeah. they were bringing the bags of cans. Yeah, you understand there's nowhere to go, but you you won't go in someone's doorway, like. Yeah. Yeah. It's not nice. It's very disrespectful. Yeah, especially those pensioners, the doors are going into and everything. Yeah. Now, the news is that there's a gate gone up, is there? Yeah, there's a gate gone up now since the other day. Since Wednesday, Wednesday morning, the gate went up. Right. Well, the problem now is that when, when's it going to be closed? Who'll be responsible for closing it and opening That's it? We were told the guards, the guards told us the parks department. Right. And the corporation fellas closed yesterday at four o'clock. Right. Leave the, the lock yesterday. Because there was people coming up urinating, just passing on through the gate is open, they're urinating there. Right. The purpose one yesterday, people were down there. Right. Like you said, we don't want people down the lock enjoying themselves. Of course not. It's coming up into the doorways and then gardens behind people's vans and cars. Yeah. And there's kids playing around the place. And do you want that gate closed all the time, Damien? Oh, no. We don't want to close all the time at all, no. Mm. It's with, with, like to the warm weather when there's gardens around the lock. Yeah. And there's people coming up tr- through the lane. We said, we don't want to be stopping people walking up and down the lane at all, like. Yeah. Like, there's a lovely weekend ahead by all accounts. And yeah. There are no... Is there any local, any public toilet? In the, the lock? No. No. So a few, few, port, few portaloos wouldn't hurt, would they? Well, it's, if you... How many are you going to put there? There's going to be 5,000 people sitting down all around the lock. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't know how many you want there, like. You want a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. the trouble, like. So, like, what would what, what do you think would be the solution? Other than the gate being closed, our, which... Our solution, our, our, our solution is to get the gate closed when it's when the last gathering the lock. Yeah. That's our solution. Yeah. So you kind of need to know who the gatekeeper is. Like, who, like yeah. for example, if you take a Sunday, Damien, who do you call on a Sunday? That's the thing, like, we ring, ring the guards, we ring the parks department. Yeah. No one seems to know. Yeah. So they put the gate in. I mean, if you were to look out, is it open right now or closed? Oh, it's open. No, it's open. No, yeah. It's open now. And they closed it yesterday at four o'clock. And who closed it? The corporation for the walking on the lock. Right. Right. Um, so presumably he is, there's one designated key holder or whatever. Is that it? Well, the corporation with the keys, the Cox City Council with the keys. Right. Right. The keys. Yeah. Yeah, because you'd be, you'd be kind of anxious to know, like, if you had a problem now, if, for example, you had a lovely Sunday, I mean, the, the forecast, say, for Sunday, forecast for Sunday is quite nice, Saturday and Sunday, quite nice. So, like, if that gate is open at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, and there's people coming up doing what they were doing the last time, uh, who do you get to close the gate? thing you see, there's, there's no corporation walking the weekend. Yeah, yeah. No more I don't suppose you could do something like have a designated resident. I mean, is there, is there a residence association? No, not, not, not at the moment. 
Yeah. Like if someone gave you a key, would you go down and close it yourself? Oh, I don't know if I'm not closing it. Yeah. I have no problem. A lot of neighbours have no problem doing it. Yeah. No, no problem doing it. Because we, we don't want to be looking at the urinating outside our doors. No. No. Less you want to be looking at, like. Yeah. yeah. A few more public like, toilets wouldn't like, go, miss. Like it's, it's, it's a bad sign, like, that we put a gate there. Because you're, you're giving the people that just walk up and down to the lock, you're stopping them going up and down. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, even the, even yourselves, like, if that gate yeah. is closed and you want to go down around the, the, the lock with the dog, you yeah. just go up and around. Yeah. Even the old pensions that sit out there during this warm days, people come up, they'll be chatting to them. Yeah. They mightn't see them from one end of the week to the other, but they know them. They're chatting with them. Yeah. So, so the gate is a good thing and welcome, but now you yeah. need to know who's responsible for opening and closing it. And, and we need a sign as well for up the top of the lane for people to know that the gate is closed, whatever time, whatever. Yeah. It's not people, finding people walking always down to walk back up then, like. Yes, there's that as well. There's that as well, yeah, yeah. Sense of it, like. So who's your who's your local councillor out there, Damien? Mick Finn, in fairness, he's doing yeah. a lot of work for us. Right, right, yeah, because if anyone, in fairness to Mick, if anyone will know how you get your hands on a key or how yeah. the key holder is designated, Mick will know, like. Mick will know, like. In fairness, there's a meeting out today about us. Right. Mm. He's done a lot of work for us, like. But it's progress, at least. Once the gear is up, that's the main thing, and it's that to it. Sound. So, uh, Tom says, happy for Damien and his neighbours, but the councillor just transferring the problem over to another area. The lock itself just needs to be policed. Yeah, they'll just move it over, like. Yeah. Problem just move on to the next road up. Yes. Yes, because it's not the, that's not the only laneway up and down to the lock. No. no. Like, there's a gate in Lockville that's closed all the time, next lane up. Right. Yeah. It's closed all the time, like. I have you. I have you. All right, Damien. Progress, but uh, it's not quite as much as we need yet. Thanks, Damien. So they have a gate now. And the council will close the gate there yesterday at four o'clock. But what happens on Saturday or Sunday when there's a crowd around the lock and the gate is open and there's people coming up and down the lane to answer the call of nature, as it were? Who do you call? To close the gate. Who do you call? Ghostbusters. You know? 1850-715-996. On climate change and Earth Day, Natasha says, I've been saying this for years. Why don't government demand that companies reduce their packaging at source? It would make so much more sense. But of course, there's money to be made from recycling. So we the people are paying the price. Like, for example, when you go to to Tesco or a Super Value or a Dunn's or wherever you're going to buy a cucumber. There is no reason in the wide earthly world of all that's good and holy for a cucumber to be wrapped in plastic. None at all. I don't buy cucumber that's wrapped in plastic for that precise reason. There's no need for the flipping plastic. What's the point of putting plastic around a cucumber? It has its own jacket. It doesn't need plastic. Simple little things like that. The carbon tax bill. While I understand we need to be doing more for the planet, there's only so much, and this is a good point, there's only so much that normal households can do. Like all these taxes add to the weekly bill, but wages and hourly rates stay the same. It's very frustrating to manage paying bills with fresh air. Sorry, I can't come on. You make a great point, though. 
this is not something that's free. The cost of behaving better toward to our environment, which we've all got to do, it isn't free. It can be quite pricey. Like, have you seen the cost of insulation? We're all been told put in more insulation. Insulation's not cheap. And you might get a grant, but it won't cover it, won't cover it all. And have you seen how much it would cost to retrofit the average three-bedroom semi to the grade that we're supposed to? It cost a flipping fortune, and the, the grants won't come anywhere near covering it. Olivia says every time there's a change in a logo, they rip everything out and change everything, the clothes, the offices, the whole thing, for a logo. And then they say they care about the earth. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Vanessa, I think companies could do a lot more in providing transport for employees to be more convenient, reduce the need for parking, and it would cut the emissions. You take public transport. We, now, we've got some very good public transport in Cork. I was telling you about earlier in the week about the fact that I get the bus on a Monday and Tuesday morning or so, a couple of mornings a week now at this stage. Bus at quarter to seven suits me grand. But, like, what if I needed to be in at quarter to six? There might there might be a bus, but not that frequently. And on my route there might be, but on someone else's route there wouldn't be. Meat-free choices in company canteens, says Megan. Proper ones. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. City is a new one-man performance taking place on the Everyman stage this week until Sunday, April 25th. Written and performed by John McCarthy, City is being streamed as a live video broadcast from the Everyman and tickets can be found at the venue's website, everymancork.com. Access all areas. There's three more concerts coming up as part of Cork Orchestral Society's online programme for 2021. There's one a month taking place from May to July and they feature Winds of Change, Change of Plan and Diva featuring three sopranos in July. More information can be found at CorkOrchestralSociety.ie Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streamed events by emailing us here at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. If you use Instagram, you'll know that it's nicer as a platform than the other ones. Uh, Facebook to a lesser extent. Well, Facebook can be nasty at times. Comments in Facebook can be nasty, but at least you can hide them or edit them or delete them if you want to. Um, but Twitter is a complete and absolute cesspit. An absolute cesspit. Instagram, on the whole, is nice. Many people wouldn't agree. I suppose some people have been bullied on that too, but I, I, I just think Insta is a bit... A bit nicer. Now Instagram's come up with a new thing where you can filter out abusive messages and filter out abusive comments. It's part of an update. Now Premier League footballers and others, celebrities have said that there have been a lot of abuse going around Instagram in recent months. Um, maybe what I said about Instagram is a little bit out of date. I, I just always, my own personal experience of Instagram is a bit nicer. Um, but you can be abused on it. 
and 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 Instagram has announced a new filtering tool now that that allows you to automatically filter language. Uh, the Queen of the Socials, Mary Jane. Hi, Mary. Mary Jane, how, how are, are you? you? Good. I'm good, thanks, PJ. How are you doing? Good. Before I get into it, would you agree with me that there wasn't a filter? You, our Instagram used to be nicer. Um, you know what? I think, yes, I think it did. And I, you know what? I still think, actually, um, it is one of the more um, social and probably is still... You know, if you compare it to something like Twitter, yeah. it's still it's still a little bit nicer. Um, I don't find on a personal level that I, I will get a lot of abuse on Instagram because I think like a lot of the time people follow people because they want to engage with them or because they find their content interesting. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'm not famous, right? So I'm like, I'm talking about beauty and it's very, it's not a personal Instagram account, but it's it's all kind of about beauty and the odd bit of food or whatever. Mm. And of course the odd skit. When you have people that are like footballers and are at that higher level, then that's kind of where I think the, you know, they're attracting, you know. No, no matter where they go, they're going to get trolled. Yeah, they, they will. And, that is a, a very unfortunate and harsh reality kind of of, of where they're at um, and it's it's not right but I suppose when you're looking at somebody that's you know earning a couple of million a week um, and then they're in something like the Premier League where um, you know you have or you know if you if you take my industry if you have somebody who's a massive massive um, beauty influencer or you know a fashion blogger or something um, you know, they're going to have people that are from either rival clubs or, you know, who just don't like them for whatever reason. And they are going to come on and abuse them. Mm. Now, they, Instagram, I suppose, as a as a platform is always evolving. Yes. Um, they update the algorithm. They update different things all the time. And one of the things um, that you, you can kind of do um, is you can refuse to take, you know, there are ways of filtering the messages already. Because there were a lot of, um, how would you put this now, um, adult um, people working, we'll say adult online, working online on OnlyFans, and maybe not OnlyFans, but, you know, who were trying to sell, you know, naughty pictures or yes. getting people to subscribe to channels. And they were sending out mass, um, I think about two months, about, about eight weeks ago, they were sending out mass um, amounts of emails, you know, direct messages to people, follow my account, honey, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and Facebook and went through a rake of yeah. that as well, yeah. Yeah, so, it, like, they, they have been working at cleaning up that sort of element of it. And now, obviously, abuse is becoming so prevalent. Um, online bullying is becoming so prevalent. And, you know, I was even just talking about this yesterday, where I've kind of learned so much about my own language and my own social awareness through social media. You know, there are things like that you'd say when you're at home, you know, or when we used to be able to meet up with our friends and have a glass of wine and you'd say something and they'd know that you wouldn't mean it in a demeaning or demoralizing way. Mm. Um, but, you know, on social media, you know, somebody could come across that and t- and find it highly, highly offensive. So, you know, you really have to be careful, you know, as a person, as an individual online that you're not kind of, you know, that you're not seeing as being, as being, you know, racist or homophobic yeah. or anything like that. 
Um, and I mean, like, if you look at maybe, you know, expressions that our parents would have used and things like that, I mean, they're all absolutely not acceptable um, to use now. But you see, you know, when, when you were speaking um, with Sandra yesterday and she was saying that she was in situations where people were laughing into her face. Yes. Um, I, I was actually appalled. I, I couldn't believe that anybody would be that mean. But that's, the online element of it is, is much easier for people to target you because, you know, they don't have to look at your facial expressions. Mm. They don't know your personal life. Like, for example, if you're, you know, Premier League footballer, okay, they know that, you, you know, your wife is this person um, and they know that you have two children and they know that you live in a lavish house in Cheshire or whatever. Yeah. And they know all this stuff about you. Um, and, you know, that's all up And it is not okay. To, do, to to mention any of that on a person's it's, Instagram. It's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely not okay. But, you know, you you have people, um, PJ, that are out there, you know, that are looking for information on people or looking for things in their past and stuff like that. You know, social, like, tw- you know, for example, a tweet that I put out 10 years ago, there's maybe no way that I would put it out yeah. In the all this, now, oh God, know? this trawling of the depths of what you said ten years ago just drives me, drives me demented because you be so careful. Like you say yeah. something, and you say it, and it's you, and the people who know you know it's you saying it, and some idiots will pull it up a year and a half later to make a point with you in the middle of an argument and be abusive to you. That's what block and mute are for. But this new thing, by hidden words on the gram, Mary Jane, yeah. what's that about, and how does it work? So, like, so basically, what it what it means is that I mean Twitter has a function that you can like mute certain words and this will be this will allow you not to see it so people come into your message so basically for people that don't know how Instagram works if you follow somebody um, the messages come into your inbox and you see it and um, or if it's someone that you've interacted with before it comes straight into your inbox then there's a message request section which would be like where you know other people might find you so they might say oh look I saw you were talking about mascara would you be able to give me a bit of advice or whatever and that's grand and those message requests you can you you look at them and you see them and they're they're okay but you could have the odd one then that would be you know something you know you're you're fat or you're ugly or you're this or you're that or you know obviously there's other words you know racist words that I I wouldn't um say on air and stuff like that um, or homophobic slurs. Mm. And what you can actually do now is you can mute those words so that you don't ever have to see the messages. They're, oh. they're just completely ra- kind of... So if a message comes directed at you and it's got one of those words in it, it'll just disappear in midair. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. Exactly. So I think, like, you know, Instagram as a... You know, Instagram and Facebook have always been very... They, they say, you know, this is their marketing, they've always been a very community-focused platform and they... They try not to allow hate and stuff. Now, look, they haven't done enough by a long shot. Facebook, a quick trawl through Facebook completely dismisses that argument. But you'd like to think that you can, I mean, like you said, Instagram used to be nicer. You'd like to think that you can keep your gram nice. Yeah. And, you know, look, nobody comes on, you know, and look, there's a big difference between being, being held accountable for something that you do that's wrong and then people that are just, nitpicking every single thing you do. Mm. You know, there are certain guidelines that people, you know, should follow, you know, if it's advertising and all that kind of stuff. But it's it, like, you know, you have people that are just sitting at home and I say this like in, in, in a kind of mental squalor and they're 
they're looking for reasons to be abusive towards people and whether that's based on sexuality whether it's based on you know racism it's like there are people that, or it could just be you know someone is fat phobic or they're you know, they see someone that's doing well mm. and they want to, you know, it's that kind or of... Or they cross of, they cross a line. Yeah, and they want to take them down a peg or two because they think, come here, this one is getting a bit too big for her boots now. I'm Who are they to decide that? Who are they to decide that? But th- this is it. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know how anybody would sit at home and, and, and follow people that they don't enjoy engaging with. Like, you know, there'd be certain people that I would think, oh, God, you know, you might have maybe a slight obligation to feel you have to follow them. But you can still kind of mute them and not see them <laughs> on your... Ignore you know them. what I mean? You can ignore yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's, look, you know, you know, Instagram is such a visual place as well. That's the other side of it. So, like, in order to put a post on Instagram, there has to be a photograph or a quote or mm. something. There's a bit of work it's in very, it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's a few minutes work in this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a visual place. So, and people are very stimulated visually by things and people can be angered visually by things. Like if you ever see a picture of an abused dog or something like that, like if you hear, you know, that there was a dog kennel that was abusing dogs or whatever, it's awful. But if you if you log on and you open up and you do you see the image, you physically see the image, it's a far more emotive thing. And mm. that's why Instagram, I think, is so emotive for people yeah. because they see something that they think, God, I don't like yeah. the look of that. So hidden, hidden words, you'll be able to protect yourself from stuff that you just don't want to see and you have a right not to see. Instagram changing with the times, I guess. Mary Jane, thank you. As always, Mary Jane O'Regan. Uh, 1850-715-996. Actually, yeah, I, I haven't seen it because I wasn't looking at it, but um, Julie from Twins and Me, who's been on this programme with us many, many times, has had a nasty experience herself on Instagram of late. I think she had to go to the guards about it. Now, that's not acceptable in any man's language. You have to wonder as a parent, when do you start to have the conversation with your kids? When do you start talking about them? In my time, and I'm sure in your time too, it became known as the birds and the bees. It's different now. You talk about consent you talk about danger and you talk about being careful and you find that they're younger and younger and younger when you have to have that conversation and how do you begin to even start and I look my kids are in their 20s now and thankfully those difficult conversations are behind us but you know if you've got children 10, 11, 12, 13 you're wondering when to start and how to start Yvonne Hogan good morning to you Good morning. You wrote a piece in The Independent about this. How do you start that conversation? Well, the the interesting thing was that if your children are 10, 11, 12, you've kind of already missed the boat in some ways. So what they suggest now, what the research suggests now, is that you start these conversations as soon as your child is born, literally. Now, what that means is in terms of how you relate to them, how you dress them, like when they're a bit older, saying, I'm going to change your nappy now. I'm going to, you know, change your clothes. You model consent from the very beginning. Mm. So, so you're, you're actually doing it when you don't even know you're doing it. So it's quite daunting, actually, when you look at it initially. But the more I researched this article and the more I spoke to the experts, the better I felt about it, I have to say. I have an eight-year-old daughter 
mm-hmm. and a three-year-old daughter, and I've started talking to my eight-year-old about, you know, she started asking me questions. I got her a book. So it was kind of in my in my brain, and I wanted to make sure I was doing it properly. So I realised as well that there's amazing work being done in the schools and in the HSE in this field that I was totally unaware of. They're way ahead of the curve and way ahead of the parents on this. So mm. it isn't actually as daunting as you think, but it's more work. Your eight-year-old is... You're already doing things... But surely a three-year-old, like, you don't even contemplate talking about that to a three-year-old. Well, you don't have to talk about the deed as such. But no, no, what but you do is they're you do, too young. They're babies. You don't start bringing that stuff into their lives, do you? Well, you see, the point, the whole point the research um, is trying to instigate is that you don't compartmentalise it. So, for example, with a three-year-old or a two-year-old and a three-year-old, they recommend you use the correct anatomical terms. Right. You know, for, for the genitals and things like that. And that's kind of where the... That's what you're doing with two and three-year-olds. You're, you're not, you know, creating a situation where there's shame or stigma attached to certain body parts. So you're giving them the correct names. But it isn't, it's quite subversive, actually, to do that. And like I was in Aldi there lately and uh, my three-year-old was like shouting out the word vagina, talking about something. You get a lot of looks from people and you can get a lot of pushback <laughs> from other parents. Because it is quite subversive. That's what I meant when I was saying they're kind of ahead of the curve. Yeah. Like, when I heard, when I was speaking to the experts about all, I was surprised because... I remember when I spoke to my eight-year-old, um, she was asking me about periods and things like that, and I was explaining it. And I was kind of saying, oh, Lord, now what if she goes into school and starts announcing this is her new work, you know? So I was saying, <laughs> you know, it's very... Um, I was like, these are private conversations. They're not secret, but they're private, and that you shouldn't talk to your friends about it because every mummy likes to talk to their child about yes, it first. Yes, good, solid advice, actually. But I don't think I was... I, I, well, I wasn't really correct according to the experts. You just... You know, we just have to get used to as parents talking about these things. And, you know, like there was another woman I spoke to for the article. Her name is Sarah Spruill, who's a sex educator. Mm. She's an occupational therapist who specialised... started specialising in sex education when she realised she herself had a lot of kind of deprogramming to do around her children and sexuality. And she said, she says, the main thing is you do get a lot of pushback from other parents. And she told a story about her 10-year-old telling her friend about condoms. And the mother was very understandably, you know, not pleased about it. And she had a conversation with the mother. So, So you will, as a parent, get pushback from other parents, I think, if you do. Because you know what they say, don't you, Yvonne? Like, they're just babies. Let them be little kids. We can talk about these things when the time comes. But unfortunately, I think what the experts are saying to us now is the time, the times are coming earlier. The times are coming earlier. And also, like PJ, look what that did for previous generations. There's that too. I mean, it's, it's protective to have your child aware of all the parts and all the bits. You see, we can't even say them on the radio. And actually, it's funny, like you find people going to the doctor now at our age saying, oh, I have a, you know, a pain down there. Or, like we're adults and we can't even use the term. So like, there's obviously something wrong there. But it's about creating a more open society where sex and sexuality isn't this kind of thing you put in the corner. Because and the, the previous generations hid it away yeah. And maybe that's why we had mother and baby homes. And also that's why we had a lot of abuse. 
Yes. And things like that because you think, but also look at what we're doing, right? We're saying you don't talk to 10 year olds about that. But they're out in this landscape where it is, like if you believe some of the accounts, it's everywhere. So it's not fair of us to say you can't talk about it. You go off and deal with that yourself and, and I'll find out about it if I'm lucky and there's a problem. Yeah. So we need to create. And the, the best advice I got from them was you start talking about representations of gender and sexuality from day one. So when you're sitting down next to your little girl watching Frozen, you talk about, you know, you know how the women are represented in it, how, you know, you'd say, for example, you know, girls aren't... Yvonne, have you, got a, have you got a, mi- a couple of minutes to wait? Because I'd, like fi- I'd like to develop that a bit yeah. after the news. Would you be okay with that? I would be okay with that. All right. Yeah. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, I asked Yvonne Hogan to stay with me for a couple of minutes more talking about this because I think Yvonne... Where, where, where we were about to start going before the, the, the news was putting yourself into position as you are a mum of, of young kids. Like, when you consulted the experts on this mm. article you wrote, did, did you look at your own parenting and think, Jesus, am I going wrong here? Well, I looked at my own parenting thinking, I hope I haven't gone wrong already, yes. Because I suppose we don't have much context for these kind of conversations. They just didn't happen when I was growing up. Mm. No disrespect to the generations that went before because they probably had an even worse grounding than we did. Come back to what you were saying about Frozen because that was interesting. Okay, yeah. So here, this is a good example now. So basically you're reading books to your kids. You're sitting down watching the movie, watching Frozen. So what they call it is the incremental approach. So if you start talking to your children about the representation of gender and sexuality and relationships, in, in the mainstream media, like in the cartoons they're watching, in the books they're reading, from the time they're tiny. Then by the time they start to digest porn, which, according to Maura Germain of the HSE, is earlier and earlier, and mm. like in, in, in rare cases can be as young as 10, you'll have established a rapport with your children that will make the conversation around these things so much easier. So what so kind of conversation kids, would you have with a five-year-old watching Frozen, say? Well, actually, interestingly enough, my eight-year-old said yesterday, we were watching uh, one of the Harry Potter movies, Mm. and she was like, I'm so happy that they don't have tiny feet. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, in all the cartoons, all the Disney cartoons, the girls have tiny feet. I had never noticed that before. (laughs) But if you look at it, they all have tiny feet. Now, it's funny, right? But what is that saying? To go, like the men have normal feet that are really functional for running and racing and the women have these tiny little feet, you know. So all these things, like when you say that if, if you're not talking to them about these things, they're accepting all these images in as normal. If you're not noticing them yourself, they're kind of accepting. And next thing they think their feet are too big or their bum is too big or their boobs are too small, yeah. or all these things. It's, I suppose the daunting thing about a PJ was, I was like, oh God, that's such a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I have a job, I have dinners to make. But actually, <laughs> it's job, it is a lot of work. It, it, 
probably much easier to sit down and have the talk when they're 10 and never think about it again, but But it doesn't prepare them very well. I would have thought that the answer to that observation, God, I'm glad they don't have tiny feet, is, well, Frozen is just a cartoon and in cartoons things are different. That's true, and you're right, and that is certainly valid, but... They watch a lot of cartoons. Well, my children watch a lot of TV while I work <laughs> and a lot of cartoons. This is their universe. Yeah. And they're, they're here all the time. They're receiving these messages. Now, I wouldn't go too far. Like, I wouldn't be one now to ban the Disney princesses or any of that because you can't protect... Oh, no, that would be... You see, I think, I think people who do that are going way OTT. Well, they're kind of doing what our parents' generation did about sex because the children are going to see the images anyway. Yeah. They're going to be entranced by them if they can't, because they are lovely to look at. So you just have to contextualise it and say, this is fantasy, this is cartoons, as you said. Hmm. You know, that's not They're how... Not, like, I thinking years ago, you probably remember this, some idiot decided that Tom and Jerry needed to be banned because it was gratuitous violence. For goodness sake, it's, it's a cartoon. Yeah. It is a cartoon. But we were all allowed belt our brothers and sisters back then. Too. <laughs> <laughs> tis true, tis true, tis true. No, that's an interesting one now. That you, That's a fabulous, a fascinating observation. They don't have tiny feet. And did you yeah. pursue it with her? Where did you go with her, Anna? I was just thinking, oh, that's interesting. And I said, and you know, women don't have tiny waists and they don't have, you know, all these things. So it did kind of open up a conversation. Right. And it also kind of made me realise, like you think they're just watching us and off they go. But there's a lot going on in their head. Oh, yeah. And like when you're asking me about the parent, like I do feel the responsibility of parenting a lot more keenly now that she's a bit older. Mm. Like I was looking out the window at her playing there with one of her, a couple of her friends and there was a boy hitting her. A very nice boy. Just, you know, boys are a bit more rambunctious and I could see she didn't like it. And when she came in, I was like, why did you let um, that boy keep hitting her? She was like, you say everyone play together. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, you do have to be kind of on it all the time. Yeah. Which is kind of exhausting if you think about it. But, I mean, you just get on it. It's kind of the job, isn't it? It's the job, exactly. All right. Yvonne, good talking to you. Thanks very much. 1850-715-996. There's the thing. I wonder, has your child, and I'm talking your smallie now, five, six, seven, eight, have they surprised you when they're watching something with you? Have they observed something that you haven't even noticed? Because they do. It's like they have a third eye that spots stuff we don't. I, I, from the mouths, my, my wife has a great saying, she constantly says it, from the mouths of babes comes incredible wisdom sometimes. 1850 Have your kids ever surprised you with something like that? And you went, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. The drama is sensational. That's 80. Oh, he's done it. It's an equaliser. It's stoppage time. And it's all right here. Greenish for seven. Join me, Trevor Welch, on 96fm.ie for the Premier League Live online, powered by TalkSport. Go, go. This Saturday, it's Liverpool versus Newcastle at 12.30. West Ham versus Chelsea at 5.30. And Sheffield United versus Brighton at 8. Go, go. Jarson, I'm ready to go. 
The Premier League Live Online. With Now. Stream all the action from Sky Sports with a Now Sports membership. Go, go. Listen every Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or see 96FM.ie. We've mentioned many times on the programme over the last couple of years how inevitably we're all going to have to move towards driving either an electric car or a hybrid car in the next three to five years. Certainly if you've just bought a new diesel car or if you've just bought a new petrol car, but definitely if you've bought a new diesel car, the chances that you will probably never again be able to buy a brand new diesel because they're going to be phased out over the next number of years and petrol will follow them. And eventually, we'll all have to drive either a hybrid or a fully electric because that's the way it's going. And at the moment, they're really expensive. But maybe that is changing. Geraldine Herbert uh, from wheelswomen.ie. Geraldine, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. We've talked about this before, that they yeah. are pro- even the smallest little electric or hybrid was prohibitively expensive. Is it coming down in price? Yeah, the big thing with electric cars is they are more expensive. They're not, it's not so much that they're expensive, but they're expensive when you compare them to what you can buy for the same money in a petrol or, or diesel. Yes. And the big issue there is the battery, PJ. That's the, the big component, the, the, the additional component, really. Now, the cost of batteries is coming down. It's estimated that probably it'll be another two years before we'll see a really drastic reduction in the price of batteries. But by then, what we really should see is price parity with petrol and diesel. So you'll be able to walk into a dealership or you should be and you know the equivalent sized petrol and diesel car should cost more or less the same price as the electric car so when you factor in then how cheap it is to run an ev we'll actually it'll actually be cheaper to buy an ev rather than a petrol or diesel and that's what we're looking at heading towards say as i said in about two years time that it'll be cheaper yeah when you factor in the running costs because remember if you look at the total cost of ownership now, it's considerably cheaper to run an electric car on a weekly basis. It's considerably cheaper for motor tax and for servicing, but the upfront cost is higher. Yeah. So once that upfront cost comes down, and then when you look at total cost of ownership, it will be much cheaper. And this is what's happened in Norway because they've artificially created this parity through you know, heavily taxing petrol and diesel and very generously subsidising electric cars. Mm. So it is actually cheaper. And now in Oslo, up to 70% of new cars sold or electric so Crikey. you can see what you know the difference that could make and the, the, the price of the battery we know and that, that will like you say eventually come down but th- there are fewer moving parts aren't there yeah. in an electric so That's- so if you open the bonnet of a standard petrol or diesel there's 101 things that can happen in there and that can go wrong so that's why servicing is so much cheaper because there's just, as you said, exactly that. There's just fewer moving parts. So they're the sort of things, PJ, when you look at the cost of an electric car, it's not so much the purchase price. And I know that is what most people see and it's the only thing they concentrate on. But you really have to look at the lifetime cost of the car. Hmm. Another thing that people are half afraid of too is when they sit in one for the first time and it looks like being on a space shuttle and they don't know, There's no, God, where's my clutch gone? And what... You know, there's a fear factor there. Uh, there is completely, and I wasn't even aware of how bad that was, except a friend of mine was dropping her car in to get serviced recently, and she was given an electric car to take out. And she went off, started it no problem, because she was advised in the dealership as to how to do it, but got to a roundabout and stopped and didn't know what to do, and was completely and utterly bamboozled oh, by yeah. the car. And I suppose I, I take it for granted, jumping from one to the other. I don't kind of view it in terms of, a, you know, somebody stepping into it for the first time. But I think there is definitely a fear factor there, more than I had actually realised. But again, that just really comes 
down to PJ taking a car and you know as I said maybe when you're getting your car service the next time actually taking an electric car if it's offered to you out for even a spin and just getting to grips with that because yeah. they're not that much different but initially as you say it is that idea of where is everything that I would normally expect yeah because a cousin of mine was driving um, a beautiful electric um for just uh, he he works in in the industry, and he was driving a gorgeous electric, and he pulled up next to me. And he said, "I must give you a burn in this thing," and I said, "I wouldn't have a clue where to start. It's, I I wouldn't know. I and I'm driving thirty years, and yeah. I would not have a clue where to start. And I think a lot of people, Geraldine, have that initial fear." Yeah, no, absolutely. But within five minutes, PJ, if you were properly shown what was what, you'd get used to it so quickly. And if you're moving from an automatic car into an EV, it's even easier because, it, you know, the transition is even smoother. I suppose the initial thing is when you press the start button, there's no noise. So you have nothing to tell you that the car is actually starting. Yeah. And some of the newer electric cars as well, when you get into them, you don't even have to press the start button. They're actually just, they switch on. Once you release the handbrake, you're off. So there's a few things like that. But, you know, somebody to sit down with you and just run through a few things with you, you'd be surprised. Surprise, PJ, you'd be yeah. on the road and you would be absolutely fine. They are not in any way alien. They are very, very familiar once you get used to them. I suppose it's a bit like when you go on holidays and you, you, you hire a car where everything's on the other side. It takes about 20 minutes and then you're grand. It's exactly that, PJ, exactly. And as I said, if you already drive an automatic car, it's even easier. Which I've never done, but anyway. Yes, that was another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, now... In terms of hybrids versus electrics, maybe explore this for a minute because it's a, it's a, there are so many different terms out there now, like with a hybrid, plug-in hybrid, mild hybrid. Like, what are all these things? Okay, basically what you need to know is the difference between a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid. So a hybrid car you drive, whether it's a mild hybrid or a hybrid, you drive it exactly like you would a petrol and diesel car. You don't have to charge it. You don't have to do anything to it. And basically it has an electric motor that assists, you, assists the driving. So the idea of those are really to reduce emissions and to increase fuel efficiency. So they're far more economical than your standard petrol car. Now, a plug-in electric is, our plug-in hybrid is actually classed as an electric car because it has an electric battery that you can actually plug in. So it is, it does what it says. Mm. Plug it in and you can but charge it. There's a so, question. Why would you need, if it has the engine and the engine charges the car as you drive and as you brake and all of that, like, why do you need to plug it in? Okay, because in a hybrid car, you will, it is more efficient than a petrol car, but it's not that more efficient. You'll only get a bit more efficiency and you'll get a, a, a slight reduction in CO2 emissions. With a plug-in hybrid, you can get far better economy for the simple reason that if you have that electric battery and you might get, the average is about 60 kilometres of pure electric range in it. Now, the ideal way to do this, PJ, is if you have a commute that's, you know, kind of an urban commute, you don't do much motorway driving and it falls within that 60 kilometres, you could actually find yourself on a daily basis travelling to and from work purely on electric. Mm. And you might find, I know people who have plug-in hybrids and they might fill the, the, the car once every six weeks. So you just have the reassurance of that petrol engine for when you go down the country or when you go on a motorway mm. or when you need it. But you could be doing all of your commuting purely on electric. And uh, is it uh, a thing... You'd never be able to do that in a hybrid because it just doesn't have the capacity. I wish, yeah. Is, is, is it a thing that, like, that the, when the battery is running down in the electric, does the petrol automatically kick in? Yeah. So you'll never be stranded with a plug-in hybrid. And that's what people like. Well, how would you be stranded with... Sorry, no. With with a non-plug-in hybrid, then, surely the same thing happens, doesn't it? With a a regular hybrid. With a regular hybrid, once you fuel in your tank, you're fine. Right. 
So this is what people like. So it really depends on, on how far you want to do this. As I said, a hybrid car, a regular hybrid, whether it's a mild or a regular hybrid, you don't have to do anything. You can drive them exactly as you would a petrol and diesel and you just benefit from the better efficiency. With a plug-in hybrid, though, if you have the right sort of commute, and as I said, that's that kind of, you know, if you can do everything within that 50 to 60 on a daily basis, you will really, you will you very rarely ever have to dip into the petrol, um, the petrol engine. So from that point of view, they're far more economic than a hybrid. I but I suppose some people see it as, a, as kind of the downside is that you have to fuel it and you have to plug it in. Yeah. But other people see it that you have the benefit of both worlds. You're dipping your toe in sort of the electric world but yeah. you still have the reassurance of a petrol engine. Now, in terms of grants and what the government offers to help us transfer over, I know that the plug-in hybrid, for example, attracts a different price range than the hybrid. Yeah, the plug-in hybrids are more expensive because you have that electric battery. The other thing I would say, um, PJ, is you, if you buy a plug-in hybrid, you have to be prepared to charge it on a daily basis. Because it only has a 50 or 60 kilometre range, it's not huge and it'll evaporate in, you know, daily. So you have to... Uh, the, the other thing about it is it's not that economical in terms of a petrol engine because it's heavier, because you're carrying around that battery. So to benefit and to really get the benefit of a plug-in hybrid, as I said, you have to have a commute that suits it and you have to be prepared to plug it in yeah. daily. So, so you have to put a yoke on the wall of the house. Yeah. So then again, the consideration is, do I have a suitable spot for a home charger? Do I have a driveway that suits a home charger? So you have to ask yourself those questions, same as if you were buying an electric car. It really is essential, TJ, that you have access to a home mm. charger. And those things, they're a big box. Like, you, you, you're, not, you're not running an extension lead out the window from the bedroom here. This is no, a no, specialist. No. Right? Yeah. no, you need the space. And again, there is a grant of €600, Euros, but it could cost you up to 1400 depending on how complicated it is to put it in in your house so it very much depends on your own setup but it really is essential not only for just the reassurance of being able to charge at home but it's just far cheaper PJ to charge at home than it is on the public network so I would say do not even consider an electric car or a plug-in hybrid unless you have a home charger. Yeah, yeah. Are the government helping us enough? They they want. They said, didn't they? The previous government said they wanted us to be driving all electric by twenty thirty. The motoring industry insists, or was insisting at the time, that you couldn't do it. Has that changed? Can you do it, or could we do it? Well, the idea was that you wouldn't be able to buy anything but but an electric car by 2030. So, I mean, you'll still be able to buy your petrol and diesel right up to then. And remember, PJ, cars last a very long time. And, you know, the average age of an Irish car at the moment, is, I think, is about nine and a half years. So we're still going to see those cars on the road after 2030. You just won't be able to buy new ones. But I do think in the last 12 months, there's been a, a, a distinct change in the motor industry in terms of Europe. And we're definitely seeing a far greater acceleration of electric models. So it's becoming far more a realistic proposition than it was. I mean, even, you know, literally a year ago, I would have said, "Mm, we may see a lot of electric car choices in the next kind of four to five years. Now we're looking at them in the next two to three years. There really is a a, a considerable change and a a very, very swift change towards electric. Do you know what I thought was interesting? Someone brought this up on the phone. Like the NCT, if you have an electric that is due for NCT, there's no emissions to worry about here. No. So that's the one that we all worry about with the, with the NCT. The car is grand, the car is driving fine, but Jesus, look at the emissions gone down again. Oh, for goodness sake, you're back to the mechanic for all that. That's gone. Well, there again, you see, that's your running cost, so you don't have to worry about that. So again, they, they're the sort of things you need to factor in when you're looking at the, you know, the total kind of lifespan of the car. Yeah, and the NCT is still the same price, even though they're not testing the emissions. Yes, I know. 
Is there any any hope that might change? I don't think so. It's not something I've heard. And as I said, like the NCT itself will still be doing NCTs for your regular petrol and diesel for a long time, yes? Yeah, yeah, because you think if you're... I mean, and we all know the, the, the emissions is a big part of the NCT. So is there even going to be an emissions-free lane? Um, for yeah, putting I mean, electric through. we'll have to consider these sort of things as, you know, I mean, there's still, I suppose, not enough electric cars on the road yeah. to really be considering those. But another few years, you'd be surprised. Yeah. And there's the thing, how long does it actually last? Because I remember a friend of mine, or a, yeah, drove, he drove an electric, which was a 2015 model. And I met him last year and he was thinking of getting rid of it because the range had started to collapse. Like, does the battery hold its range? Well, speaking to people who have electric cars and are maybe are on their second and third, and they, there are a few of those people around, they say there, there is a, a change in, the, in terms of what you can get and there is a slight reduction, but it's not huge and it's not massively significant. And you can actually, if you're buying a second-hand electric car, you can have it checked in a garage to find out what the, um, the efficiency of the battery right. is. So you can figure, you know, you can find out if it's running at 80% or 90% or whatever. So I wouldn't be worried about that. The other thing as well, if you consider something like the Nissan Leaf, the Nissan Leaf has been around for 10 years. There hasn't been any major problems with it. Yes. So, you know, that's reassuring. And also, Lexus have a new electric car um, they, that just went on sale in January, and they're actually guaranteeing the battery for 10 years. Yeah. So all of these things should really reassure people that, you know, it's okay, the batteries are not going to just disintegrate <laughs> over a few years. So I, there isn't a concern with them. I was watching an ad the other night for, I think, a Volkswagen, I think, uh, electric, and it would put a range on the screen and I thought to myself if I remember what they said to me in the industry that that's okay that's we'll say 400 kilometers unless you're using the lights unless you're playing the radio unless you're using the heating every other element of the car draws off the battery has that solved been problem been solved it has. When I first started driving electric cars, it was like that. And you could do a 10-kilometer uh, journey. And if it was in the winter and you had all of those things on, you might lose 40 kilometers of range. And that was really worrying. And, it, you know, it, it, that's where the whole term of range anxiety came from. But now the range is becoming really, really accurate. And I, it's something I check all the time when I have electric cars is actually how much distance I've covered and what the impact on the, the range has been. And it more or less matches it completely now. Oh, so that's something, again... People really need to test drive electric cars over a weekend. There's no point, PJ, going into your garage and taking it for 20 minutes mm. because you really need to get to grips with these things. And the only way you kind of get through that psychological barrier about range is if you actually witness it, you take it on various different roads and you mm. watch the impact of your driving on the range. Because the other thing that people don't understand about range is you can actually get far more out of the range than the range displayed as well. So you can extend it by your driving. Okay. So. It isn't a situation where you're going to get on a motorway and you have 200 kilometres range and literally you pass, you know, the first exit and you're suddenly down to 50 and then you have nothing. You get plenty of warning. As I said, it is very reliable. And if you do get stuck, you can... I had a situation... I had a problem with the car, I couldn't charge it and I had to get it back to Dublin and I'm 50 kilometres from where I was going and I managed to do the journey on 15 kilometres of range. Now, I wasn't tearing down any roads or anything, yeah. I was taking it very easy. Very handy. But you can do that if you get stuck. It is possible to extend the range. So these are the kind of things you only get to grips with by driving. You get used to it. A bit, like, a bit like, I suppose, when the, the petrol light or the diesel light goes on in your car. If you know your car, you know exactly how long you've got left. 
Yeah, apps, it's exactly the same. You know how to extend that. And in some ways, though, EVs are even better than that. Really? You can grow it a lot more. So I think... Do they give you a warning? It's very hard to explain to somebody. You really need to experience it. Do they give you a warning? I need charging. Oh yeah, absolutely. You'll see the, you know, you'll see the range come down, and most of them as well. Obviously, the new cars have sat nav, and they'll actually start to flash up where your nearest charging points are. Yeah. Now there's so, a thing. Tom has been on to say, and I wanted to ask you this anyway. If I'm going to Dublin in a few years' time in an electric car, where will all the charging points be? I think a better way of putting Tom's question is, on a cold dirty, dull December day when you need the heating and you need the wipers and you need all of that. Does the electric car exist as we speak, Geraldine, that'll go from Cork to Dublin safely on a single charge? Well, how far, what distance is that? Centre of Dublin City to centre of Cork. Would be how many kilometres? 270 kilometres, I guess. 270? Mm. Oh, yeah, I mean, and nearly every electric, new electric car that's sold at the moment does at least 300 now, remember the other thing as well is they're putting charging points in all over the place, mm. fueling stations. The ESB are investing 20 million in the public charging network, and there's a range of different types of chargers, but there's high powered chargers going in as well, and they will do 100 kilometres. They'll give you 100 kilometres in range in six minutes. Wow. And that doesn't yeah. damage the battery? No, absolutely not at all. Wow. I mean, fast chargers will do about 80% in 30 minutes, but it's like six minutes is, is less time it'll take than to run in and buy oh. the newspaper and a cup of coffee in a few minutes. Exactly. These are the kind of things, that, and there'll be more of those in a few years' time. Plus, the range in electric cars is getting better. You know, 450, 500 is is not unusual anymore in a brand new car. So everything is, is, you know, it is getting much, much better. So it will be very easy to, you know, to do those sort of journeys and return in the day. So, you know. Amazingly, um, this one comes in. Supposing the electric went on strike, what would happen then? Would we be able to charge our cars yeah, if there was a power cut, um, again, but I mean, again, the thing about it is if you consider the average mileage um, by most motors, I think according to the last um, CSO travel survey, was about 318 kilometres a week, and that's seven days a week. That's your, you know, your Monday to Friday and your weekend pursuits or whatever. So if you have a car with 300 or 400 kilometres in range, if you don't charge it one, you're not going to be charging it every night anyway. So if you miss a night or there's a power cut or whatever, you'll still be okay. So, you know, you have to factor that in as well. Most people don't do a huge amount of driving on a daily basis. Yes. We tend to sit in traffic and think that we do more, cover you know a greater distance than we do, but we don't actually. Yeah, yeah. Like um, you, you wonder, and again, it's a question that doesn't arise. If everyone was to plug in their car to charge it in Cork tonight, you couldn't boil the kettle. But sure, no one's ever going to do that at the same time. Exactly. That's yeah. So I mean, these are they're they're not. That's the kind of thing you have to consider: is how much driving do I do? What's the range of my car? When will I be charging? You know. So I mean, that's not going to happen. My last one is, and I maybe maybe we touched upon it before, but I think people are very interested in 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 the bob the book in in their pocket. Like, if I decided tomorrow I want to change to electric next time out, in other words, change my car June, July, I want to go to electric. What's available for me in terms of a grant, an allowance, a return? Okay, this used to be quite a straightforward um, answer, but it's got slightly more complicated. Okay, so there's a €5,000 SEAI grant and a 5000 VRT relief. Now, this 
was 10,000 in total and it used to be offered on all electric cars. Since the last budget, it's not. Um, it's only offered on cars that are 40,000 um, before grants and it goes from 40 to 50, then it's tapered off and by the time you buy a car that's worth over 50,000, there's no VRT relief. Now, however, what the, um, what the government did do is they changed the lowest VRT band from 14% to 7%, so they reckon that balances it. But... Um, so they've, they've changed the VRT relief, but essentially it means for the customer, when you go into a dealership, the grants are all accounted for with the price that you see. So the price that you're given in a dealership or the price you see in the papers or in car reviews is the on-the-road price. Okay, so, so the car is on display and it has a price on, on, on the window and that is That's after the- all those things are taken into account. Yes, so you don't have to worry about those and the dealer claims all those grants or whatever. So really you just have to pay what I call the the on-the-road price, which is the price in the dealership. So those grants really are, they're irrelevant in the sense that it's not like you think to yourself, oh, how much can I take off that price? That's not how it works. It reduces the purchase price. Exactly. I see, I see. And then in terms of the charging point at home, like you said, that the average, if you have a little small driveway, say, the average house has a driveway, holds one car, and you have the side wall of the house. Like, how much to put that in, and what grant do you get? Okay, there's a grant of six hundred euros. As I said, it can cost anywhere from about a thousand to maybe fourteen hundred, depending on your own setup. So you may have to pay three, four hundred euros towards that. But I mean, it is well worth doing, PJ, because you. I mean, it costs so little to actually charge an electric car at home. Like you'll yeah. do on most sort of average size cars, say a Nissan Leaf, you'll do probably three hundred kilometers for about four euros. Really? Yeah. Crikey. So it is well worth the 400 or whatever to get the home charger in. Just charge it at home. Um, and then you don't even have to worry about the public network or the, you know, the infrastructure around the country. Because as I said, you have 300 kilometres there for the week or whatever. And it's cost you €4. Euros. You'll, you'll make back the money you spent on the charger quickly yeah, quick enough. And it's worth it just for the, both for the reduced cost in, in charging and just for that reassurance of having your own home charger. So it, it, is, it is the way we are going, I guess, uh, Geraldine. Thank you very much for that. I think on Earth Day, we just wanted to mark it with a good conversation on, on electric cars and where we might be going. Thanks very much, Geraldine Herbert, wheelsforwomen.ie. I think that's very informative. It's, it's an awful lot different than it was five years ago. And that thing about the grants... It doesn't need to confuse you that much because when you rock up to the garage and you say, right, I'm going electric and I want that one. Well, the price on the window or the sticker is the price that that you pay after the grant, the relief, the whole thing is taken into account. So you don't need to worry about that. What you do need to worry about is the 600 euro grant towards the charger in the front of the house. And what extra you might have to pay on top of that. But as Geraldine says, if you're going to get 300 euro or 300 miles for four quid, then that charger will pay for itself in, in a matter of months. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Cork's 96FM. In the examiner yesterday, property editor Tommy Barker had a piece about, I, I tell you, if I was single and I had money to spend, and I mean single, you'd need to be really single, single for this, I'd buy it myself. This is number 24 Vicar Street. It's tiny. It's eight feet wide. Like, the house is eight feet wide. Like, we did a a bit of an extension last year in Coogan Towers 
across a roof that was eight feet wide. So, like, it's a tight space. And it's just, it's on the market now for 185,000. Three times what it was worth when it was a little wreck of a place, just stuck in there between two other buildings. It's it it's just off Barrick Street, near St Finbar's Cathedral, and it's it's just tiny, one hundred and sixty five thousand. But there are pictures in the Examiner of what exactly has been done with it, and it's been taken from basically a shack that you might want to take a bulldozer to, and turned it into what you'd only describe as one of the most beautiful little. You might call it a... You wouldn't hardly even call it a house. Like, it's like a little flat. And there's a kitchen, and they've made a yard out the back, a patio, and they've put in a mezzanine and a ladder, and it's fabulous inside. And there's kind of a craze on now for doing big things with small houses. Number 24, Vicar Street, Bates Banner now. But, of course, the television show about doing up small houses and old homes. Uh, Kieran McCarthy of KMC Homes in Cork is involved in that. And you'd be fascinated with a project like this, Kieran. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. How are you keeping? Not too bad, sir. Like this little one, I mean, it went from being a shack that you'd bulldoze to, as I said, if I had the money, I'd buy it myself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's an amazing success story. Um, I was looking at the article there on, on the original house and it, it looked like something, I mean, it, it was really neglected. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you'd, you'd walk past it. It's worse. Well, you wouldn't think it's a house, but second of all, you, you you wouldn't think it's something worth buying either. You'd walk past it very quickly. You know? mm, if you knock the front off it, you basically have a parking space. Yeah, there you go. Eight foot wide, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it shows you what can be done with a small space. Yeah, well, I mean, so I think this is where the value was was driven. I mean, someone walked past that. Um, this, this 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 individual a few years ago walked past that and saw the potential. Now, in fairness, they did a wonderful job on it. I mean, they made it from something very shook looking to to something wonderful. So, I mean, there was there was great vision there. Um, and uh, I mean, it's the, the, the use of space, the, the the mezzanine area up on the first floor, and the little yard and everything else. And it was because the areas were so small, they were able to put in kind of high-end finishes. But because your area is so small, mm. the, the price didn't go up a whole lot because, you, you know, the quantities were small. Yeah. So you're able to do it well, you know. Like, is, it expensive? is it expensive to do something on a small scale like that? Or is it all uh, about the square footage? Uh, when, you, when it gets small, okay, doing anything in the city centre... Um, your access is is a, is a nightmare because you know anytime you bring a truck, so you're you're holding up traffic behind you. So, uh, so access is, is always is always a, a tricky detail. It's more hours than materials, really, because your materials are going to be small. But there's an awful lot of small areas you're trying to get workmen to work in and everything else. So it's it's tricky, and you know, you have neighbours and the built up environment to to work with as well. Mm. You know? Is it something that a guy like you likes to see as a little bit of a challenge? That if you're going to come here, you have to buy in this place. Now I don't know what you're going to think. But I want to turn uh, it into a two-bedroom or a one-bedroom. Is that a challenge that someone like yourself it, lo- likes? It is. It is. It, it, no, it, it, it's a bit of a headache as well, I'll be honest with you. But it is a challenge. And like I suppose creatively, there's nothing more, um, there's nothing more pleasing than turning an old building and bring it back to life. I mean, creatively, it, it's much more, um, much more interesting than a, than a new building, in truth, you know, because, again, you see it all come back to life. And, and, uh, and usually you're improving it as well on top of it, you know? Mm. 
I suppose people will have been holding on to a bit of money during the pandemic, those that could, and, and might be thinking of doing something with the house now that construction can start up again. Do you expect to be busy? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the first of all, I suppose a lot, most builders were on projects when um, when the level five started, um, so they were committed to work already on the books. And of course, as you say, everyone else is is thinking about doing something to the house. So there's that, also all that new business coming in. And I suppose, like what a lot of people have told me as well, is you know during the various lockdowns beginning last year, a lot of people have kind of reevaluated their life plans or things that they were hoping to do in three years' time. They've decided, look, I might as well do it now because the whole world is changing and everything else. So there's been a sea change really in people reassessing their, their life and life plans going forward and whatever. What people will be afraid of, like you said, if you had a bit of a job on and lockdown hit. People will be afraid now that there'll they'll be a very, very long queue to get the job finished. Uh, there is that. I mean, construction was quite busy anyway, and then yeah. it's been locked up for months and months. Um, and then and probably people have more interest in their homes now, because I suppose the one thing lockdown is, and COVID and everything else has, has taught us is that our immediate environs are, are really the only things that we can be guaranteed in the short term. We'll, we'll be there no matter how, many, how much lockdown we have. So our immediate environment has become much more sacred to us, you know. Yeah. There's a project that you're involved in that began here on the programme uh, a year or two ago, and it must have been held up by all of this, and that is the new house for Deirdre down in, in Middleton. How's that going? It is going very well, would you believe? Yeah, we're, we're almost there. We're almost there, and we, we, we'd love to talk to you down there sometime. Yeah. Absolutely, love to. When it's we can get down story. there, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. This is a, a family, just to remind listeners, this is a family that uh, we spoke to, was it last year, Kieran? Early yeah. last year. Yeah. You yeah. know them, and uh, Finbar is affected with a, a very nasty illness, and they need to, and I think so do their daughters. They mm. need to get out to a new home. They had some money. They just needed a bit of guidance and a sight and all of that, and you got that, and we were, we were mm. following it with them. Um, and it's, it's near. It's near to completion. Yeah, we're very nearly there. Now, Brilliant. Yeah, that's fantastic. Kieran, good to catch up with you. Kieran McCarthy of KMC Homes. Construction will be back. They're telling us. We'll get the announcement next week. Construction should be fully back in the month of May. And there's a worry that people will have. I know. Like if you were in the middle of something pre Christmas, when when everything locked up and everything stopped, like your worry is going to be, Jesus, when will I get them back? When will they come back? I know that's very, that's worrying an awful lot of people. We might do more on that as we get closer. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. John says, "I have an outhouse bigger than that." We have learned nothing from the Celtic Tiger boom. You mean the cost of one hundred and sixty five thousand for that? I know, but you see, it'll 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 learn what the market will pay, John. My God, it's true though. It wouldn't. It was sold in its previous condition for sixty thousand. Which then that was an awful lot of money for four walls and a roof, as it were. But a hundred and what is it now? Say again, one hundred and eighty-five thousand. It's a lot of money for an eight-foot-wide house. A place called the Groovy Grove. I love the name. Joe Curtin's a youth worker at the Granaborha Youth Centre in the Hut. Hi, Joe. Good morning, Peter. This is a lovely name, the Groovy Grove. Where exactly is it, mate? Well, I can't take credit for the name. That was my colleague. Uh, Mihal, who came up with the name, but basically it's on Sun Valley Drive in Churchfield. Right. If, if you know Sun Valley Drive, just I down do. from the roundabout there, across from the grotto. Yes. It's just on the bank there. Um, we planted 
over 500 native Irish trees. Right. And I'm a youth worker for Youth Work Ireland from the host, and um, it was a great kind of project, especially during these times when we can't do face-to-face yeah. group work. Um, it was great to, to be able to, to get involved in this project. So, so who, who planted them? So the young people, um, local local community groups and residents, community members, it's a whole um, big approach from all the different organisations in the area. Okay. And um, it was different locations to the Groovy Groves area, uh, as it was named, it's just in some Valley Drive. But we planted about 30 apple trees as well in different locations in the local schools, called Padre Pio, and in the before five preschool as well in Churchfield. Right, right. Now there's birch and there's pine and there's oak and there's hawthorn and there's willow and there's rowan. And how, I mean, obviously it'll take many, many years before they grow to, to full size, but the plan is to create just a woodland. Yeah, that's the plan. It's an urban, urban woodland. And yeah. I suppose from my side, um, the Green Spine Project, I suppose, was an initiative that started last year. And myself and Michael O'Connor from the Health Action Zone are, are leading it. And he's looking after the, the kind of the gardening and, and, and the biodiversity side. But, but from my point of view, it's just about getting young people involved mm-hmm. in their local area, um, having a positive opinion of their area and kind of taking ownership, you know. I see. I see. And, and there's great benefits there for everyone getting out in the open air to do it, if nothing else. Exactly. Even just doing it is a benefit and for the people in the community as well, hopefully, when we have some of the art projects set up and some of the trees start growing and, and, the, and the plants, it'll improve the uh, atmosphere in the area and give everyone a bit of a lift. Quartz 96 FM.